Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, and host of The Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, episode number 61, When the Good Guys Suck, part two. That's right, part two. It's here. It's finally out, and we're going to burn it down to the ground when we come back. All right, so we are back to today's episode of the Brett Johnson Show, number 61, When the Good Guys Suck, part two. You want to know the truth of the matter? We could probably make this just a weekly episodic series, parts 34 through 65 or whatever the hell that is. We could do that. There's so much of this stuff to talk about, but I may lose a good number of my viewers who work for the companies that we're calling out. So maybe not want to do it every single week. Maybe just bring it up every now and then. Today's episode, we're going to talk about specifically those companies which helped to facilitate pandemic fraud. We're going to break down how, pandem how pandemic fraud operated. We're going to talk about it from the criminal side, how Telegram helps to facilitate sharing and exchanging of information, tutorials, things like that. I've interviewed a former, I'm sorry, I've interviewed a criminal a cyber criminal who took part in pandemic fraud. I wanted to record that interview, but you can imagine that we're not going to, he's not going to allow me to record something where he's admitting crimes that he committed, especially as he's still committing crimes. So we call this individual Wally. Wally asked to be called Wally because he told me back in the mid 2000s, he ate Walmart alive. And I have no doubt about that whatsoever. So I'm going to recap his views of pandemic fraud and what happened from his standpoint and the criminal group that he was involved with, with how they profited and what happened from that point. We're going to talk about that. Then we're going to move over into some of these companies that helped to facilitate pandemic fraud. Of course, before we get to that, as we know, and if you don't know, let me tell you, we do Q&A, viewer mail, things like that. And we've got some topics and stuff to kind of go over and discuss today. So without further ado, Let's start with the first mail of the day. I got this last night. It was sent directly into the website. And this lady's name, her name is Dawn. And she is also a follower of mine on Twitter. And um, the reason I'm reading this is because every so often, someone really gets this show. And not only do they get this show, but they see an insight into me that... Uh, I kind of like to keep hidden a lot, but I'm very appreciative when somebody notices that. So I just wanted to read 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 her email and give my feedback to that, my response to that. Uh, so she's like, her first name is Dawn. I don't give last names, but her first name is Dawn. And her message, first, love your show. Outstanding. Second, sometimes I have a hard time listening because the volume is so inconsistent. If I'm watching listening alone, all is okay. If I'm watching listening with others around, it's too difficult. Just take that for what it's worth. Don, I agree completely with you. I do have some volume inconsistencies and troubles. Um, I'm hoping to get to the point, especially with my new podcast that's launching the Prison Politics, I'm hoping that's going to be a moneymaker. And I'm hoping to get to the point where I'm able to hire someone to do sound and video so that I'm not like, you know, okay, this does that sound high enough and go like that? So bear with me. I will I will tweak it again on this episode, try to get a little bit higher, a little bit more uniform throughout. All right. But as you know, I'm this idiot 
that sometimes I go off on screaming stuff and sometimes I get real low when I get serious and stuff like that. So, uh, so bear with me. I'm trying to address that and uh, hopefully sometime in the very new, near future, it will be leveled out completely. Okay. But uh, thank you for saying that. Thank you for listening. Um, number three, I love your humility. There was a time when um, when I was not a very humble person. I'm not sure that um, I try. I try. Okay, I try to be humble, and I try that humility. And I think that um, what helps me do that is being open and honest. Because if I'm open and honest about what I'm going through, and uh, the shit that I've done, I really don't see any any other way that that you could be that you could not be or show some humility. Um, there was a time when I was a criminal that, and even when I was in prison, that I was I was called out for not having humility, and uh, that was a very eye opening moment for me. So I, I try, and I hope I'm getting better at that. Which leads us into point number four: I appreciate your ego. And sometimes it's a bit much. I understand it. And as, as has been pointed out to me in several of the comments on various shows, my show and other shows that I've been on, dude has got an ego. And um, you're right, I do. I do. Um, I think uh, from a criminal point of view, you have to have that ego to think that you can get away with these crimes and even to be willing to commit these crimes and to go in through with those actions. You have to have that ego. Um, you know, I've got uh, training in a stage background, theater. And for you to be on stage, you have to have that ego. For me to speak in front of, uh, of, of individuals, you have to have that ego as well. I think ego can be a very beneficial thing. But as you point out, sometimes it's a bit much. And I, I agree with that. I absolutely do. Again, I'm trying. Um, this is, uh, it's not one of these things where, where you, you know, you decide to change your life and fix the stuff that you don't like about you. It's not something that happens overnight. And I think you know that uh, because of the other uh, messages that you've got below that. But I, I think you know that. And um, again, anyone who thinks that I have a, uh, you know, a huge, like, you know, unbearable ego, bear with me. All right. I'm, I'm trying. Okay. And I, I think I'm doing better with it. Certainly the, the high, the hiatus that I took from, from the Brett Johnson show and where I'm, where I'm coming back now, just over the past few weeks, I think it's calmed down. I may be wrong, but I think it's calmed down. Now, now there are people who complain that, oh, he laughs a lot. He does his voices. Guys, I'm going to laugh. I am. It's either uh, a lot of it is, is you either laugh or cry. But a lot of it is that laughter at myself and, and laughing while I'm telling some of these stories is, is a mechanism which allows me to talk about those things that are very uncomfortable. So um, I, I, I'm not going to apologize for that because it, to me it's more important to get out the stories and the information than it is to sit here and be somber and not do these things. The voices, guys, that's, that's just who the hell that I am. You could ask my family, you can ask friends, you could ask people in prison. Jesus Christ, when I was in prison, I had this <laughs> I had this little thing where 
we'd be somebody would be you know just going off and i'd be like why don't you shut the fuck up that's right you talk all the time that's all you do is talk 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 and i'd take a little sharpie and draw a couple of you know eyeballs on my hand and that would be the little head that was talking and and that's just who i am i don't um i've always done that and i'm not about to stop uh, some people enjoy it some people don't again i think maybe the information is uh is such that maybe you could tune in and kind of you know overlook those parts that you don't enjoy i would hope so anyway all right uh number number five i believe you have insecurity that will disappear in time. Don, I would absolutely <laughs> agree with that. Um, I have likened myself to being an introvert that fights that uh, being an introvert by being extra, overly extroverted in certain situations. Uh, like when I go on a trip to, to speak or something like that, I typically, I'm by myself. I mean, I, I'll, I'll go and see a concert or something like that if there's one around, but I don't like, I mean, I like being, you know, kind of just by myself. I'll stay in the hotel room. I'll turn on on the TV. I'll turn on uh, South Park. If they've got some sort of South Park marathon on Comedy Central or something like that, I'll turn on South Park and I'll, you know, I'll get on my phone and I'll do my Twitter feed and stuff like that. And I'll do some research. And, and that's typically it. I'll come out for the presentation in the conference and I'll turn on at that point. You know, I mean, I'm this big guy and I'll, I'll turn on and uh, be on that, that public Brett Johnson for a while. Then I'll go back and I'll, you know, I'll eat dinner by myself and I'll uh, get on the plane and, and come home. I, that's, that's what I do. I'm not, not a big party guy or, or anything else like that. The, the insecurity that you're talking about, I'm going to tell you the truth for, um, for me to do this show solo is one hell of a thing. It is. And I, I am insecure about that. I think you can certainly tell that on the on the opening episodes of the Brett Johnson show. Hell, I wouldn't even look at the camera. I was pulling a Jim Morrison. You know, Jim Morrison at one point, he wouldn't even face the audience. And with me, the first uh, several episodes of the Brett Johnson show, I wouldn't even look at the camera. I'd just be, you know, I'd be doing the show like this um, away from the camera. And I, I'm getting better at that, but it's it's a very, to me, there's not a whole lot of shows out there that are just one single person talking. It's usually an interview type show, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to bring people in every now and then to interview, but I wanted to, it to be the Brett Johnson show. I wanted to be able to say the things that needed to be said and also talk about you know the, the um, that arc of trying to become a better person. Of, of making that choice to turn my life around, getting a little emotional while I'm, while I'm thinking about this. But you're, you're right. I do have insecurities, which brings us to number six. I believe your confidence will grow as your insecurities disappear. And Don goes on to say, there is no reason you need any more for your insecurities, but it's your journey. Again, you are awesome and love seeing you grow. An old lady fan with lots of life experience. Nothing like yours. I got that. Uh, I got this email last night. Thank you. I have. Uh, I have trouble 
accepting compliments. And my my first cousin told me at one point, she she said, you have trouble with that, don't you? I was like, yeah, this has just been about a year, two years ago. And she was like, you know, just say thank you. Um, so thank you. And uh, I really mean that. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, with that, she's uh, moving right along. Whew. Okay, so into some regular Q&A. This is from uh, JSU. He commented on one of my shows on the YouTube channel. I usually uh, talk about which show it was. I didn't make that note here, so please apologize. But JSU, he says, I strongly, I am going to strongly disagree in regards to criminals work harder than ordinary people. All right, so his, his issue with me is that I, I have said in the past that criminals, you know, especially in fraud, if you're looking at a, uh, a fraudster, when I was a criminal, I was online 16, 18 hours a day, sleep a few hours. The only time I really took, uh, took time away from a computer was to map out a route of ATMs and go pull money out of ATMs. I was constantly working. And I've, I've said that, you know, I, I also had a degree of what I like to call this, this criminal Asperger's syndrome of, of getting focused on something and staying on that topic regardless of what else is going on. Everything else just kind of disappears to the side. And I still have that today. For example, I wake up and I start to work immediately and I really don't stop until I go to sleep at night. And if, if we're supposed to go out to dinner or, or show or go shopping or something like that, uh, usually my wife and kids literally have to, you know, berate me and get me to stop what I'm doing. And I get angry because of that, because, hey, I need to finish this. I need to finish this. So it, it, that's not uncommon with more skilled uh, old school cyber criminals. All right. You compare that to people on the good guy side. And a lot of the times it's a nine to five job. Now, sometimes it's not, but it's a job. Um, I think JSU, I think you're not understanding what I've been talking about in the past is for criminals. And I don't care if you're a drug dealer, if you're a bank robber, if you're a mortgage fraudster, like Matt Cox, you came over for Matt Cox's show uh, over to mine, but, or me, a cyber criminal. It is a criminal lifestyle, and that means something. It's not a job. It's not even a career. It's a lifestyle. It's something that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, except on leap year, then you add another damn day to it. It's constant. It's constant. You're constantly on point. You're constantly doing this stuff. You're always looking for ways to profit. All right, to to commit those crimes which you're engaged in. So you're always working. And the amount of work that goes into that far exceeds anything that is on the good guy side as far as career, as far as job. The only thing I might be able to liken it to is you get one of these CEOs in a startup position where they're they're constantly having to just grind things out. Bam, 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 bam. All right. That's the only thing I can really liken it to. I'm sure there are, are other jobs as well that can equate to that. But understand that the term criminal lifestyle means something. I've talked to several law enforcement agents across the planet. And I've heard more than a few times that, you know, the amount of work that you guys put into committing crime, if you were doing that legally, my God, you'd be unstoppable. And there's a lot of truth to that. Now, you may not like, here's the thing, you may not like that. You may not accept that. But by God, that's the way it is. 
moving right along. And I don't mean to crawl your ass on that. I don't think I am. I'm just saying, hey, this is what happens. Okay. Uh, you you made the point. Your email was farther. Was your comment was longer than that? You said, you know, a criminal will choose crime nine out of ten times. Absolutely. The choice is always there. All right. It's not that if someone is forced into a life of crime. It's not that someone has to commit crime to escape their neighborhood or that mommy didn't hug them enough. It's choice. There's always a choice. And you're absolutely right. I chose crime. Matt Cox chose crime. Bank robbers, drug dealers, they choose to commit those crimes. And nine out of 10 times, they're going to do that. Absolutely. One final thing I'll say about the email, you finished it up by saying that Matt Cox is a sharp guy, but a standard nine to five job would send him straight back to jail. He wouldn't last a decade before going back on his ways. And you asked me to agree. And I do not agree with that at all. I've, uh, I've had several interactions with Mr. Cox. I will grant you that he was a prolific criminal, much like me. All right. But I will tell you that he is on that path to becoming a healthy, legitimate person. He's already over top of the hoop or that, that hump of not committing crime. I, I firmly believe that. All right. He works his ass off every single day to make his show a success and also bring in income because he understands what his triggers are. He understands he needs to do this. Yeah, he likes being in the limelight. He does. He also likes, you know, being able to pay his bills. Who doesn't? But I'm telling you now, he's over top of that hump. If he was in a nine to five job, I think that he would, I don't think he would be happy. But I don't think that that would end with him breaking the law and going back to prison. I think that he would stay in that nine to five job and that entrepreneurial spirit that he's got that's now on the legal side would continue to, to think and try to do things off on the side until he was able to quit that nine to five. Fortunately, he doesn't have to work a nine to five. He's got his show. He's got speaking engagements. He's, he's doing very, very well across the board. Now, understand too, and I say this to, to most former felons that are out there, you really don't want a nine to five. First of all, you're, it's going to be harder than hell to find one. And the second thing is, you're always going to be over somebody's thumb. You're, you're never going to be equal to the other employees that are in that organization. You're much better off creating your own business. That way, at least you're able to tell someone to fuck off and fuck you. You want to be able to do that. All right. You want to run your own business. You want to be your own boss. I mean, that's one of the things that that's really, I, I think, not appreciated about a lot of criminals is that a lot of us, have that entrepreneurial spirit. We just chose it in the in the you know the crime highway. But that's what I would say about that. No, I do not believe that Mr. Cox would go back to prison within a decade if he had to work a nine to five. All right, moving right along. This is from Nick Evans. The episode is episode number twenty eight on addiction, and Nick uh, makes the point of a good bit of why people do bad things and don't stop has a lot to do with the way they feel bad about doing those things. And he, he talks about that for a second, then he gives an example. My girlfriend's best friend forever died because she felt like she was scum and didn't want her family to know. And I offered to pay for her to get treatment and take care of anything else. So she wouldn't have to tell them multiple times. I've seen people feel this shame that they sinned a few times. People believe drugs are bad and they have sinned to the point that it makes them feel like this. It pushes them away from help and into addiction. Okay, so here's the thing. 
I have talked about my show on addiction, but I also talk about addiction through many of my different episodes, through many interviews, things like that. Now, I was never addicted to, to drugs, all right? I didn't start drinking until I was 34, until my, my first wife left me. That's when I started drinking. And I like to think that I tried to make up for it at that point in time. But that's when I started drinking. I never did, I've never done cocaine. I've smoked joints, uh, you know, marijuana a few times. Yes, I did absolutely inhale. I, I can say that I liked it. Um, I could say I liked it maybe twice out of those five or six times that I've, that I've, uh, that I've actually smoked it. I actually, uh, um, not too long ago, I was told by a former host, a co-host of mine, that, you know, the edibles were very good. And I was like, well, shit, let's try us some edibles. So got some in. I was like, I can make my own edibles. I'm In Alabama, you don't have dispensaries or anything like that. So I was like, I can make my own damn edibles. So I looked up online about how to make edibles. I was like, okay, that's not that bad. And, I, I, and the example for the ready-made edibles was you take a Ritz cracker and you put some peanut butter on it and you sprinkle the, you know, the marijuana on top of it. You put it in the oven and bake it for a few minutes. I was like, that's fine. So here I am, dipshit bread. I mean, it was bad. Dipshit bread. Get the Ritz cracker out, put it on a pan, you know, get like six of these some bitches out, put it on a pan, peanut butter. Then I get, I get this handful of marijuana. I just, I'm like, Hey, if a little's good, a lot will do it. So I, I mean, I load it up, get it out and start eating. Of course, you know, you got the, uh, the, that, that bullshit marijuana that's mixed in with a peanut butter. It feels like you're eating, I don't know, like oregano mixed with peanut butter. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible thing. So I eat, you know, like four or five of these things. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it can't be that bad It's you know, why not? Well, I didn't know. Now, I, I didn't know that you could overdose on this bullshit. Now, I didn't overdose, but it was so bad about an hour into it that the only thing that I could do was lay there. And any single movement that took place, I would have to get up and I could hardly stand. I would have to get up and, and stumble to the toilet and throw up. And I did this for several hours. So my my interactions with 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 marijuana have not been good at all with alcohol i i end up drinking alcohol maybe three times a year i enjoy champagne i enjoy cider yeah i know cider is not a manly drink and i understand that champagne is not a manly drink but i'm going to tell you i like that shit and i do it about three four times a year um anything else i've not i mean i've uh, i've had the opiates the the tablets and I realized I had a tooth pulled and I realized that when it was pulled, they gave me these, you know, Percocet or whatever they gave me. They gave me that and I took it. And about the third tablet in, I was like, man, I like that shit. So I immediately stopped and went over to ibuprofen and just loaded up on that. Um, so, I, and I, those are just my little personal, you know, substance stories. My addictions were never substance based. My addictions were based in crime, in boosting that uh, that self confidence that that Don was kind enough to point out. She recognized in boosting that up uh, because I was very good at crime. I was very good at social engineering. I'm very good at speaking these days. Um, I'm ex I'm exceptional on a stage. So it, it, crime helped to boost that. Crime uh, was that addiction. 
It was also the addiction of, um, because of the childhood that I had, I, I, I am in, I don't like being separated from the people that I care about and love. I don't like that, you know, having to go away at a nine to five job. And so crime helped fulfill that. It, it, it allowed me to stay at home, even though I was working my ass off. It still allowed me to stay at home in the direct physical vicinity of the people that I loved. So, and I'm, I'm still like that today. I'm still like that today. I still like to be around those people that I care about and, and love. And speaking and consulting and, and my YouTube shows and stuff like that, that allows me to do that, to satisfy that need. And that need comes from my mom, the way she raised me and my sister of, oh, I'm going to leave one of these days. I'm never going to come back. I gave up my life for you. Bang, 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 you know, blah, 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 constantly. You know, you're going to, you'll find me dead in a ditch someday, something like that. And because of that upbringing, I'm still traumatized because of that. I still don't want to be separate from the people that I care about. The addiction, and it took me a couple of years, the, 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 pro, the, the process of addiction, when I'm ta talking about that, is I put, so my addiction was crime. I had an uncle who was addicted to gambling. He wasn't a drinker or anything else like that. He would drink, but his addiction was gambling. I've known people who were addicted to substances. My first cousin, he's been addicted to opiates, for uh, I'm 53 now. He's been addicted to opiates for 30 years, 30 years. He's went to prison because of them, everything else. So he, he's, he's got, I've, I've, I know people and I'm close to people that have suffered, suffered from uh, uh, various different forms of addiction. All right. Including self. It took me a couple of years in prison to realize that the addiction comes first and foremost, first and foremost, you, I chose committing crime above every single person in my life. Even those people that I claimed to love and those people that I, that I said that I did love and really felt that I loved. But at the end of the day, I loved the addiction. I loved committing crime more than I loved them. Or I would have stopped what I was doing because every single day I was rolling the die about going to prison, about getting caught. What did I think was going to happen if I got caught? Well, I just put that out of my mind. I, I adopted that that philosophy of fatalism, whatever's going to happen, going to happen. Because if you think about the consequences of your actions, any rational person would not continue those actions. My, my uncle, great uncle, Bernice was his name. He was addicted to gambling so bad that he lost his family, his cars, his home, his job. He, he sold his home to one of these like advanced mortgage uh, people and they allowed him to live in the home and, and his family to live in the home, but just until he died, just until he died. When he died, they kicked the rest of the family out. So, and he had a great career, but he, uh, he was addicted to gambling. I remember he, horse races was what he was, what is what he gambled on. And and we were in Hazard, Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky was 120 miles away, a two-hour drive. He would he would drive up to the Red Mile hardest races. And um, he would, sometimes we'd go with him. If we didn't go with him, you always knew whether he, he won or not as he was coming back home because he would make it, you know, halfway home. And he would run out of gas on the highway and then, you know, 
hoof it to somebody's house, knock on their door at two o'clock in the morning. Can I use your phone? My car broke down and we would have to bring him gas. You know, and, and if we didn't hear from him, he had a winning night that night. Uh, when we went with him, we know he had a winning night or not because we would have to pay for the gas. And, you know, if he lost, we'd pay for the gas and we'd stop at a convenience store and get a loaf of bread and a pack of bologna. And that would be dinner. If he won, we'd stop at a steakhouse and we wouldn't have to worry about paying for gas that night. Needless to say, the house wins most of the time. My, my cousin, my cousin, I mean, he's, uh, my cousin always had that entrepreneurial spirit. He worked, that kid worked his ass off. And he's, he's had these substance, this substance problem for 30 years, for 30 years. And I will tell you that in each of each situation for every addict that I've ever encountered, the addiction comes first until they hit rock bottom, until they realize that, hey, I'm done. And, you know, they may say they've hit rock bottom. You may think they've hit rock bottom, but even at that point, they've got a hell of a lot farther to fall. So you, your example, you know, you're talking about this. Uh, this is for Nick Evans. You're talking, you said, my girlfriend's best friend forever died because she felt like she was scum and didn't want her family to know. I get those feelings uh, like that, but please, please understand that individuals have to be accountable and responsible for their choices. You know, if you've got a family member who's an addict and, you know, you, you, you keep trying, you keep trying. By God, you just want him to come over. You want him to stop committing crime or stop betting on the horses or or snorting coke. My my fiance, that that uh, Elizabeth stripper chick that I was getting ready to marry, I was madly in love with her. She was addicted to cocaine. You can't fix that. You can't. You can offer rehab. Hell, they may even go to rehab. But until they make the choice, the conscious decision to accept responsibility and accountability and understand that their choices is what's caused them to be engaged or, or have this addiction, they're not going to seek out help. They have to make these conscious decisions to do that. You try and help them, try and offer them that, no, no, you can do that. Now, what, there, there should be a point that if it continues for so long that you have to be willing to cut these people off, completely cut them off, whether it be a friend, family member, associate, whatever. You have to be willing to cut these people off because they're going to continue to lie. I was a liar to everyone, to everyone. I lied to people I knew, people I didn't know. I stole from people, everyone. People I knew, didn't know. People I'd never meet before. Okay, so, and it's no different with whatever addiction. The addiction comes first. You have to realize that. And that's why I say that if you if you are addicted to something, you cannot really love anyone because you will always choose that addiction first. As the family member, you have to understand that. If you can understand that, then you have you can also understand that you need, if you really care about that person, you need to be willing to cut them off completely. But when I say cut them off, that doesn't mean forever. That means cut them off completely until they are ready to change their life. Obviously, this girl that you're talking about, this best friend forever, obviously this person that you're talking about has not made that decision. And it sounds like they've not accepted responsibility or accountability for their own choices that led to that addiction in the first place. All right. It's not just 
by God, you become an addict out of the blue. No, there's a set of choices that lead to that. And I think I really do believe that people have to be accountable and accept responsibility for their actions. We, we live in a society these days where you're given all these excuses for not taking responsibility for your life. We have to get past that. It's when you use those excuses, you are completely powerless. It's when you, when you accept responsibility that you are empowered and you can take control of your fate. We have to get there as a society because right now there's so much out there that, that doesn't want us to do that. Following on with that, and then uh, then I got like two more questions I want to address before we get to the meat of the show. Following on with that, CJ from uh, number 43, the crime pays episode. What she says is, is she says, you are the kindest person. It's almost impossible to believe you've had so much trouble in your life. Your love for family is heartwarming. I understand your struggle with faith. My husband was an addict, so I left with a two- and a five-year-old. Addicts do put the addiction over all else. He died a horrific death from his addiction in 2011. My husband was with him while he was dying. What, no, what, what nobody knew was my husband called me every morning to pray with him. He was terrified to die. My son, since then, struggles with faith, sadly. He knows I pray for him, and I'll pray for you too. I'm not a Bible banger and not into organized religion. I do have strong faith, and my husband had peace before he died. So, uh, I think CJ also uh, made another comment, and, and she re she removed it after that. Uh, I'm not sure she she was wanting to make a comment or not. I went through all my comments on my YouTube channel and uh, and tried to find it again and, and couldn't. So I guess it was it was deleted. But what was said was, uh, she said that, uh, you know, I'd commented several times that I don't have faith. And she said that the way I live my life, it's uh, evident that I do. And uh, I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to read that because uh, I have screwed up a whole shitload in my life. And I'm probably not done doing that yet. Um, I hope not, but I, you know, this, this, this path of uh, trying to become a better person, as I was told, and I take that to heart, it's never straight. You know, it's never just bang, 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 all the way up. You're always going to backslide on something. I don't, I don't, I, I don't think I'll commit crime at all. I don't. But, uh, you know, this idea of faith, it's interesting to me that uh, this has come out recently um, because before these comments came out, my mom, I've, I've been asked several times over the years, you know, where do you stand with God? And uh, the answer has been, 
I typically don't. <laughs> I typically don't. I, it's not that I don't know the books. I'm, I'm well read in the Bible and in the Quran in the Hindu religion mythologies overall. Uh, so both in theology and mythology, I'm well read. Um, I, I tend to be able to quote passages or, or concepts out of those books that a lot of the times, with the exception of many Muslims, a lot of the times um, Christians cannot. All right, Christians tend to uh, to go to church and listen to a preacher that talks about anything except what the Bible says. And uh, I'm the guy that I don't really like that, even though I have these huge issues with, I, I say I've got the Langston Hughes problem, you know, fundamental problems with faith, uh, strong fundamental problems with faith. Um, but I've tried, I, I've tried over the years and hoped for that type of belief system. I really have. I, it's not that I don't want to, it's just that I have difficulties with that. And again, I kind of associate that with my childhood. You know, I had a mom that, that used that against us all, all the time, that at one point she told us she sold her soul to Satan so that me and Denise could have a good life together. And then we had to prove we were, we were worthy of it. So been there, done that, and that, that has an effect. You have to understand that, that when you're a child, the way that you raise your children absolutely determines some of the problems and some of the good things about that child when they reach adulthood. It absolutely does. And, and certainly there are things that in my childhood that don't think they weren't positive. They, they, yeah, this, this ability, my speaking ability and my, that, that the way that I think and process things, I contribute that as a positive thing from a lot of my upbringing, the, um, the way that I like to do things solo, you know, it's going to be done. I want to do it. I can, that's a positive to me. And that's because of my childhood, but there's all kinds of negative things too. And, and I think that parents have to be conscious of, of rearing a child and the way that they treat that child and discipline that child and, uh, you know, conscious of what happens in the future. You know, it, that, it just takes that one, that one instant when you're, when you're angry and you say or do something that could really influence that child 20, 30 years later or throughout their entire life from that instant. So, uh, you know, with my mom, I think a lot of my issues with religion has been that upbringing because there were several instances and different types of instances like that. Uh, my first girlfriend was a preacher's daughter. He was a, a preacher for the Church of Christ, very fundamental church, not Pentecostal, going around, rolling around on, on the floor, speaking in tongues, all that crap, none of that, but just fundamentally looking at, at passages of the Bible, would not talk about anything outside of what was in the text. And that's kind of what I grew into. And I, I, I was with her for... Uh, I think five years, went to church every Sunday and Wednesday, and by God, learned it, okay? And uh, she broke up with me because she finally figured out, I'm not going to join in with it, and I'll go, but I'm not going to join in with it. So, I've, I've, And it wasn't because I didn't want to, it's just that I didn't want to be a hypocrite. And I considered myself a hypocrite if I said I believed in something and acted like I did without actually doing that. So I never did that. As a matter of fact, at one point, I really considered seminary school. And uh, I did not join that. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, a criminal, and did not join that because I had that Langston Hughes issue, that fundamental lack of faith. 
so and the reason I, I'm reading this and I said it's very interesting that this this these things of faith have popped up is because just a few weeks ago I've been it's been it's been weighing on me all right <clears throat> and uh, like I said I'm well read in those texts but I'm not instructed in those texts you know what I mean I, I, I don't, I've not had you know real instruction to that so I've decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to be taking seminary classes. Not with the idea of preaching. Nope, not going to do that shit at all. But I, I'm going to take seminary classes to to understand the text more, and maybe that will help me to uh, to come to terms to some faith. I, I, much like CJ, I don't think I'll ever be a Bible banger or anything else like that, but I, I would like to uh, to take an active role in trying to... Uh, develop a, a degree of faith so i'm going to be taking seminary classes and, I'm, and what i'm actually also considering is is documenting that that path on a youtube channel um you know just hey this is what i'm going through this is what i'm thinking bang 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 you know the truth is is that i don't i've never taken a really literal um hold or, or view of the Bible and those texts, I always look at uh, you know, it, it as allegory, and I've always looked at the the lessons that are in there as lessons that everyone could and should apply to their lives. And and so I think that the philosophy is outstanding. Uh, I would just like to be able to hopefully get a a degree of faith, and I don't know how else to do that. And it doesn't help. You know, when somebody tells you, oh, you just got to believe. No, that don't mean shit to me. It don't. You just got to believe? What? No. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, by taking a more active approach that I can uh, maybe develop that faith. And maybe we'll find out together. Maybe uh, uh, maybe I do. Maybe, or, maybe I don't. But by God, I'm going to try. So that being said, CJ, uh, you know, you, your, your email here, it's, it's evident. It's evident that uh, you even called the gentleman your husband after you left him. You loved him, and you understood what I was talking about uh, with the with the person before when they were talking about addiction. Um, you know, you have to cut them all, but you also have to uh, know when it's time to uh, to come back in. And it sounds like that he, uh, even though it was at the end, it sounds like that he absolutely knew too and uh, had turned his life around. So I just wanted to, uh, I don't think there's anything better. I think that uh, it's heartbreaking, it's heart-wrenching, it's uh, full of love, respect, understanding. And uh, if you want to know the truth, that's why I uh, I may talk about cybercrime and fraud and all that stuff, but it's it's stuff like this that really matters at the end of the day so uh, so thank you for sharing that got two more things to address before we take a break then come back to the beat of the show so the first is from you all right and he comments on episode number 60 to catch a thief and he says another great one brett keep up the good work did you ever feel intimidated by people in prison and how did you react and adjust to that so Excellent question. I guess you're getting that from the, uh, I told a story in number 60 about uh, 
uh, in a county jail, I'd seen a guy put a, a coffee cup full of Vaseline in a microwave, turn it on in like eight minutes, get it out where it's like molten lava, throw it in somebody's face that he had been arguing with. And then you hear the screams and you see the skin melt off the face and everything else. And that certainly would prompt the question, hey, did you ever feel threatened? The answer is one time, one time. Um, other than that, not at all, because most people in prison are, uh, most people are just trying to get through their time. In county jail is where you have a lot of violence um, because you have a mixture of inmates there that do not get along well with others. And that's typically now why you have federal inmates that are separated, violent inmates that are separated. They try to put them in their own, their own pods that way the mindsets are the same. You put, you put somebody that's looking at 25 years in with some asshole idiot that's only going to do a few months because of DUI or something like that, and he's crying about it every single day, he's probably not going to walk out of there in one piece because those guys who are doing 25 don't want to hear that, you, that you're out in three months. So they get angry about that, all right? Um, so, un, you know, understand that. Where I was actually felt threatened and intimidated was in federal prison. So, you know, I escaped from federal prison. I spent eight months in solitary confinement. I got out. They sent me to uh, a Big Spring, Texas, out in West Texas, where I got to tell you, the only thing they do good in Texas, they do a lot of stuff good in Texas. I like Texas. Matter of fact, I, I would love to move to Eastern Texas, around Nacogdoches area, something like that. I think it's outstanding. But I can say out of the gate, two things they do phenomenally well is barbecue, Best in the country, sorry, Kansas, sorry, Oklahoma, sorry, Alabama, but sorry, North Carolina, and let's not disrespect that. You guys do it well. Texas, above and beyond. They do, they do barbecue great, and they know how to properly build a prison. So, you know, Big Spring, Texas, out in West Texas, gets so damn hot that warnings come on the radio telling you what streets not to drive on. That's Texas. So... It gets the streets melt is what happens. It gets so hot the streets melt. They tell you what streets not to drive on. So I get there. I'm going through R and D. You know, receiving and discharge. I'm going through R and D. It's a converted Air Force compound. So Big Spring, the federal prison there, used to be an Air Force compound where they trained Iranian Air Force pilots. Once they got through that, it converted to a federal prison. So converts to a federal prison, so everyone sleeps in a barracks. So I get through discharge, um, go up to the barracks. Outside there is Nick Sandifer, the treasurer of the Aryan Brotherhood. And he looks at me out of the gate because I'm a white guy. He's like, hey, how, how many more white guys come in? I was like, shit, man, I don't know, two or three. He's like, okay, next question is, what are you in here for? My answer, big smile on my face, computer crime. He looks at me like I'm the biggest piece of shit in the world because – when you say computer crime, that don't mean hacking, credit card theft, tax return identity theft, all this other crap. When you say computer crime, that typically means child pornography. So what does he do? He goes to get his big buddies. They circle around me. What'd you say you're in here for? So I'm telling them, and they're like, you know, it sounds great, but still you said computer crime at the end of the day. So for the first 30 days, they think that I am potentially this pedophile. They don't do anything to me because you got to know that the guy is before you do anything. So you either have to show paperwork at that point in time. Paperwork is not being transported with you. Matter of fact, the counselors didn't want to give you paperwork because people were getting their asses hurt. 
Little did I know that at Big Spring, the, the pedophile population was about 20, 25%. So there was a whole shitload of them on the compound. Matter of fact, a few weeks before I got there, the Aryans, who were not in charge of the compound, hired the Pisas, who were in charge of the compound, Hispanic gang, to beat up all the pedophiles that were on the compound. And the guards were the ones who gave the list to the Pisas about who the pedophiles were. So after four o'clock stand-up count one day, they lock everyone in their barracks. The Pisas get out their locks on their belts. So what, what happens is you're given this master lock. You can either put the master lock into a sock and swing it around and hit somebody like that, which you don't get many hits in because the lock will tear through the sock. Or you take the lock and you've given a canvas belt. You wrap the lock around the canvas belt. You've got a makeshift mace and you can well away on somebody all day long on that. So after four o'clock count, they lock it down. The Pisas get their locks on their belts go around to each bunk that's marked as a pedophile and start beating the shit out of the pedophiles. And the goal was the Aryans had it in their head that what we'll do is we'll beat up, we'll get all the pedophiles beat up, and they'll ship all the pedophiles away from Big Spring Prison, and we'll have the compound to ourselves. Pedophile free, it will be heaven on earth. It'll be great. Well, they didn't anticipate that, no, dipshits, that ain't going to happen. What's actually going to happen is they're going to transport all the Arians off the compound. So I got there right after that. All right. So I get there. They don't have a strong Aryan population at all. This is one of the reasons that I that I really think I was never beaten or anything else like that. So I get there. They don't have confirmation that I'm a pedophile. They think that I am, but I'm not. And they don't really know anything until about 30 days later, Wired Magazine comes on the compound. I'm in the issue, front cover of it. You know, it talks about uh, Max Butler, talks about me, it talks about all the credit card theft, phishing schemes, everything else. And then it's got this one line that says, Brett Johnson, comma, Secret Service informant. So it's like, oh, shit. Meanwhile, everybody else is like, oh, you're not a, you're not a pedophile. You're just a snitch. Warden locks the compound down. Brings me in. Hey, did you give a, an interview to Wired? I was like, yeah. He's like, they will kill you in here. Don't you know that? And I was like, mm. so he's like, do you feel safe? And I'm like, here's the thing. If you tell them you don't feel safe, what they do is they put you in quote unquote protective custody. That actually means they throw you in the hole for six to eight months until they transfer your ass out. I just got through doing eight months in the hole. Ain't wanting to do that in solitary anymore because you start to see shit after a while. Is that a bug? I don't know. It was there a second ago. So here I am. Oh, I feel perfect, perfectly safe. He, and he looks at me like I'm the biggest idiot in the world. He's like, get back to your bunk. If you And he tells me, he's like, if anyone says anything to you, come tell someone immediately because they will fucking kill you here. I'm like, done. He sends me back to my bunk. They do a locker search to try to get all the magazines off the compound. They can't. I walk in the next day to the barracks. There's Nick Sandifer laying on his bunk, got the magazine wide open, reading it. And I'm like, oh, shit. I walk up to him. Hey, Nick, what you doing? Oh, just doing some reading. Anything interesting? Oh, it's getting that way. I'm like, well, let me show you something real quick. So I take the magazine, show him the line. He looks at me. He's like, I already knew. I'm like, are we going to have a problem? And he says, well, have you told on anybody that's here? And I was like, no. He says, until someone gets here, you snitched on, we don't have an issue. But I need you to do something for me. So here's the thing. Federal prison, 
first of all, you got to work. It doesn't matter where you work, but you're going to have a job doing something, making that eight, 12 cents an hour. So I got a job in education, teaching a literature class, a book of the month club class. Did we teach lit? No, we did not. Every Wednesday, 6 to 8.30, we taught fraud. All the Aryans joined in. Bunch of the bar, uh, guards used to visit two from time to time, get their little tidbits. That's number one. Number two, I was the guy who had to vet these suspected-looking people walking off the bus because here's the truth of the matter. As these inmates are coming off the bus to, to visit prison and serve their time, you know, as they get off the bus, you can literally point out the pedophiles who are walking off the bus. They've got a look. They give off a vibe. The radar just goes ballistic. You're like, that son of a bitch likes kids. So my job was to go up to these people, the white ones only. My job was to go up to the white potential pedophiles and have a conversation with them. And the conversation went like this. Hey, uh, you know, I don't know what you're in here for. I don't care what you're in here for. But let me say, if you're in here for some sort of fucked up charge, I need to know about that. And here's why. If you tell me you're not, that everything's fine, and then you go and associate with these guys over here, and I point to them. If you go and associate with those guys over there and they find out later you're in here for something that's really fucked up, they will fucking kill you. So what do you want to do? And typically, typically at that point in time, they would look at me and say, man, I just want to do my time. And you would know. And then you would give them the rules after that. And the rules were, hey, you are not allowed in the TV room. Someone may extort you. And that's the way this shit works. And that would be it. Okay. The intimidation for me came from this guy named Adam, an Aryan. And uh, so all, the Aryan Brotherhood and the nations and all the Aryans on the compound, they were kind of okay with me because I was providing them value. I was teaching them how to do fraud. If they needed help with with uh, uh, letters or something like that, I would do that. You know, I did all this other bullshit on the compound, and I was betting their pedophiles for them. So they left me alone. I was also the token guy. So if they needed an exercise program on the compound, they had their token snitch, and they had a token black guy. So they would they would put in the forms to have an exercise program approved, and because they had an African-American and because they had a snitch, it wasn't considered a gang program, and they would be approved for their classes. So I was, I was working out with them and everything else. I didn't have to join the gang. I wasn't beating anything else. This guy named Adam, young kid, I'd put him 22, 24. He did not like that. He took exception to that. He didn't understand why they were putting up with Brett Johnson, asshole that I can be, because I got to be honest with you, and this goes back to Dawn, I've got an ego. Even in prison, I ran my mouth. I Yeah, I may have been a snitch, but I don't really take shit off anybody, and I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Even now on my show, I say what needs to be said. Even in prison, I said what needs to be said. Adam took exception to that. So he would catch, catch me in a crowd or something. He'd start talking about me being a snitch in the hopes that one of these other racial gangs would do something to Brett Johnson. He'd say it loud and proud, right? And he, he, was, he did this for a couple, three weeks. And then what happens is, is uh, one night we're in the barracks, and one of the things that you see about prison is it's, it's segregated, all right? So you tend to hang out with your own races. You certainly eat with your own races, all right? Now, that doesn't mean that you don't associate with each other. But it means at Chow Hall, you've got black tables, you've got Hispanic tables, you've got white tables. That's where you sit, all right? 
Uh, and it breaks down a little bit further from that. But it also means come time to hang out. Yeah, you hang out with some other races as well, but mostly you hang out with your own type because that's where you find camaraderie and that's where you find protection. All right. So here, you know, we're hanging out one night and uh, Adam's there and he's running his mouth a little bit. And I looked at him finally. And I was like, hey, man, uh, I want you to know that you're starting to scare me. And he looks back at me. He's like, good, I'm glad. And so the Aryan shot callers are there. And uh, I looked at Aaron, uh, Adam, Adam, I'm sorry. I looked at Adam and I said, uh, well, here's the way this is going to actually work. He's, I said, what's going to happen is, is you're going to go to sleep one night and I'm going to take a pencil and I'm going to stab you in the eye with it. And he looks at me and I looked at him and I was like, bet. Well, the next day he checks in. He decides he's no longer safe on the compound spends those six to eight months of solitary confinement before he gets his ass transferred out. And what had happened was, is the shot caller had made him check in. That is the only time I felt intimidated. And they didn't want any, because of the pedophile problems they had had, uh, because I guess of the value that I was bringing to their organization as well, because of all that, they made him check his ass in. Okay, that's where that felt. Now, I, I would like to tell you that I did not mean it when I said I was going to stab him in the eye. The truth of the matter is, I meant every single word of that, because you don't bluff on stuff like that. Um, one of the things about human beings is we adapt to our environments, behaviors, and situations very quickly, and I'm no different than that. Um, I absolutely adopted that attitude, and uh, sometimes that's what's needed to survive those environments. If you, um, if you have a predator like that, that's really doing that to you, if you show that weakness, and if you don't believe what you're saying, they will eat you alive. So that was the one time and the only time that I've ever felt intimidated in prison. And that's how it was handled, okay? Moving right along. Um, there's a couple other things that I, uh, there's a couple of other Emails that I'll handle with the next show, but we are running long in the tooth, and I want to get to the meat of today's episode, so I will close this out, and then I will talk about the final comment of the day, the message. It was an email that I got. So I did a show about Frank Abagnale and fake criminals, and during this fake criminals show, I vouched for some criminals, and I said there were a couple of guys that I would not vouch for at all. After that... Especially over this past week, I've been I've gotten at least at least three different people who have contacted me to ask me about this one individual that I did not vouch for in uh, in that show. Okay, so here's the deal: Frank Abagnale lied about his criminal past. He did have a criminal past, but he lied about it. He goes on to be the catch me if you can guy. Multi-millionaire. I mean, he's he does speeches at thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars a pop. He travels all over the planet. Uh, these days, I really think he doesn't really know, know what the hell he's talking about. All right, he he screwed over AARP. Um, he doesn't really understand what he's talking about anymore. I think he has somebody telling him what to say. He gets on a stage, reads through it like that, tells his story, pockets his thirty-five thousand dollars, and goes on. Now, there's been a couple of people that have called him out very publicly. Uh, Alan Logan wrote a book about the lies that Frank Abagnale told about his history, how basically everything that's in Catch Me If You Can never fucking happened. 
Javier Lavie, Lavera, I think is his name. He runs the Pretend Podcast. Great guy. I've actually got to talk with him. I'm sharing the stage with him later this month in Columbus, Ohio. He did the Pretend Podcast that brings some of Frank Avenel's victims in to talk about how Frank Avignel screwed him over and has never repaid them. So it's a fact that Frank Avignel lied. That being said, and I mentioned this on Matt Cox's podcast, that being said, or video show, that being said, you have to consider that Frank Abagnale has also done a lot of good over the years. He's raised awareness. He's got word out. He's, he's, he's really brought fraud to the front, forefront. He's also helped me. The reason that I am able to do what I do today, basically the new catch me if you can guy, is because of what Frank Abagnale did. You know, that, that, that story arc of being this master criminal who then changes his life and does the right damn thing. All right. In this case, though, the story was not true for him. He just kind of made that up. It was true for me, though. It was absolutely true for me. And I took that as inspiration. And I owe a lot to the man, whether he told the truth or not. I owe a lot for, to the man for the position that I'm in today. I would have never even thought about that if it hadn't been for Frank Abagnale. I've never met him. He refuses to meet me. And if he did, I would I'd simply tell him, hey, man, thank you. Thank you for that. All right, but he, he he refuses to meet me. He runs from trying to meet me. Why? I think because I think he's scared that you know a a guy who actually did the shit would recognize a guy who didn't. Because I am able to do that. But that's the story. And during this during this episode, I also talk about vouching for people. All right, um, there are several former criminals who I vouch for. Daniel Kelly, outstanding young man outstanding. He has turned his life around. He does nothing but good these days. Cal Leeming, outstanding individual. John Giannone, he was a shadow crew guy. He uh, uh, He's turned his life around. If you knew some of the work this guy was doing, you would be floored by the good that he's doing in this world right now. You absolutely would. Um, Albert Gonzalez is getting ready to be released. I have high hopes for that guy. I truly, he got two 20-year prison sentences. He's getting ready to be released this summer. He's not wanting to go into tech. He's wanting to calm his ass down for a minute and just get reaccustomed to society, which is the exact damn thing he needs to do. Uh, but I really am confident that he won't go back into a life of crime. So I vouch for him. Yeah, he knows his shit. And I, I'm, I'm somewhat confident that he's going to be okay. All right. The other ones before that, they're okay. There, there's Tom Hughes. I cannot tell you the amount of respect that I have for Tom Hughes, all right? Because Tom Hughes is a, uh, Don talked about me being humble. Tom Hughes is the epitome of humility. He truly is. The guy is, is just very plain spoken. He, he, he talks, he doesn't embellish. He just tells it like it is, tells what happened. And, and it, all the takeaways from that and the consequences from that and everything else, I've got a huge amount of respect for Tom because I wish that I could, uh, could have that degree of humility that he does. So I, I love Tom. I truly do. Um, there's, of course, Matt Cox. I vouch for Matt Cox to no end, to no end. Why? Because Matt Cox knows his shit. Yes, Matt Cox has an ego. He absolutely does. But that's okay. 
You have to have an ego to do what he did. What did he do? Well, probably the most prolific mortgage fraudster in history. But it's not just mortgage fraud. He's, a, he's an outstanding social engineer. He, he, he really knows what he's talking about, and he knows how the mechanics of things work. So I've been vouching for him. And, and, and part of that vouch also means that, hey, I really don't think that he will ever go back to a life of crime. I would be, I would be just floored if that ever happened with any of those individuals that I just mentioned, okay? And I mentioned many of these people on that episode of the Brett Johnson Show, okay? And there's some people out there that I did not mention that I'm forgetting about, and please forgive me for that. It's not that I'm leaving you out on purpose. There were a few people that I did not vouch for, and I said plainly that I'm not vouching. Two, specifically. One is Tony Sales, the other one is Alexander Hall. I did not vouch for either one of those individuals. For Tony Sales, Hey, I've worked with him. I've been on a webinar with him before. Had never really interacted with the gentleman until I went and shared the stage with him in Riyadh. We were both brought in as, as speakers. I spoke first. He spoke following me. Before, uh, as we were talking, we didn't get to talk very much, but as we were talking, I asked him, I was like, well, how much time did you serve? And he tells me uh, he served like 12 months and then another stint at 13 months. I was like, okay, that, that's enough to get you a taste. I get on and give my presentation, tell people, hey, I was sentenced to seven and a half years. He follows me gets on the stage. What does he say? I served seven and a half years in prison. I'm like, what? So not only that, but he spends his entire presentation, except for the two minutes at the end, bragging, literally bragging about all the crime that he committed and telling the crowd that he committed crime to, to escape his neighborhood, that he had no choice. And then the crimes that he's detailing, some of them don't fucking work that way. So needless to say, I was a bit disillusioned by the gentleman. So I go back and I ask, ask some people, and they're like, well, you know, we can't even really find some law enforcement officials over in the UK. We can't really find much at all on him. He was a shoplifter. Maybe he ran some people, maybe not. Uh, can't really find much prison record coverage at all on the guy. I'm like, okay, well, obviously he serves prison because he can't get his ass in the United States. So he is a convicted felon. But... Did he do everything he claimed to have done? Highly doubt it. And as such, I don't vouch for the guy at all. Not only that, but I've had more than a couple of people tell me that, hey, he stole our freaking content. One of which is a, is, is a woman social engineer, never committed crime in her life. She's one of the most respected social engineers on the planet. Told me in no uncertain terms that he stole her content. Didn't even give her credit for it. I'm like, Dude, you don't have to do that stuff. You're going to say something, at least give somebody credit. You know, so I don't vouch for that guy at all. The other guy, Alexander Hall. Alexander reached out to me, I don't know, three, four years ago on LinkedIn. And we had a very good opening rapport between each other. And I, I wanted to bring him on my show. As a matter of fact, I did two recordings. Back then I was doing, uh, we were closing out the online broadcast and I was doing the Anglerfish podcast. So I wanted to bring him on the Anglerfish podcast to talk about his life of crime because he had told me that for the space of eight years, he ran meth and the entire fraud industry out of Las Vegas. Now, let me tell you in no uncertain terms that if you're running, if you control the fraud game in Las Vegas, you're doing something. So he's added, he, he said he ran meth for the Mexican cartels, for the Sinaloas. Now, here's the thing. I know people in the Sinaloas, and I'm not on bad terms with them, all right? I know people in the Sinaloan cartel. 
So he tells me this and I'm like, okay. And then he tells me, you know, I just, they let me walk away. They never knew I committed any type of fraud or I was in that game. And they just thought I was, you know, this meth dealer. And I thought that was funny to begin with. So I got him on the show recording. And at that point, he admits that, and I started asking him about the, the, the Sinaloan cartel because I was aware of how some of that operates. So I started asking him, I'm telling him, you know, I, I know some people that are actually connected with that. And at that point, he decides he's going to recant the story of the cartels. So I'm like, okay. And it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth, that recording. So I never published that specific recording. As a matter of fact, I got back on talking to him and I was like, hey, man, Instead of us putting that out, because I know you felt uncomfortable and everything, instead of us putting that out, why don't I just bring you on the show? We won't talk about the fraud and the crime because during the first one, some of the stuff that he was talking about wasn't meshing with some of the stuff the way that I know it works. Because again, I'm the guy that kind of laid the foundation for financial cybercrime. On the ground floor of that shit, kind of understand the shit, the way it works, the dynamics and everything else. So he had been talking about some stuff that was like, it's not, it's making me uncomfortable the way you're describing it and all this other stuff. So I was like, no, we're not going to do that. So I was like, we'll come back in and we'll record a show about, you know, the problems that felons have getting a job in tech. And we'll just bullshit for now. And he's like, fine. So we recorded that. I was delayed putting that out because at this point in time, I was going through some issues with, uh, with myself, but also with my fam, my dad where he's sick and everything. And I was delayed putting that out. And, and Alex kept trying to, to push me. You know, when's it going to release? When's it going to release? When's it going to release? And that left another bad taste in my mouth. And I really got the idea that legitimacy was trying to be found by me having him, by Brett Johnson kind of vouching for him by having him on the show. So never published that. Now, subsequent to that, because at this point in time, I'm like, you know, hey man, this guy, I think he committed some crime but I don't think he did it to the degree with which he says he did it. So my former co-host, this when we were on speaking terms, we had a phone call and uh, Alex comes up and she's like, uh, and I tell her, I was like, well, I just don't think that, uh, you know, he, he's doing everything that he claims he's done. And she's like, well, you know, he's, he's a really good guy. And I was like, you know, hey, he lied about this and I've got it on tape. He's not the criminal that he claims to be. And her response, I swear to God, her response was, well, you could both still benefit each other. And that was not the answer that I wanted to hear. So that was, and I've left it alone since that point. Uh, at one point, uh, Mr. Hall was was posting some stuff on LinkedIn. We, had, we were connected with each other on LinkedIn. So I'd see his post and he was talking about these the way some credit card theft worked and i was like that's absolutely incorrect and i went in and corrected him that led to the connections no longer being there so we're no longer a connection um we were on a pot we were on a webinar not long ago and i had uh, this is i think this is this leads into some of what um, these reach outs have been over the past week i've had three people reaching out uh, one one guy was like what do you think about him um Another guy was, you know, I'm, I'm talking with him right now. And then another one is, is this, this email that comes in from a, um, it was shared with me from somebody who received it from a former federal law enforcement officer. And I'm just going to, I'm not going to show it because they asked me to, uh, to keep it private. 
and not expose names or anything like that. But what this guy says, I had this email forwarded to me. I heard Alexander Hall speak recently. As a former federal law enforcement official whose antenna twitched just a little more than your average bear, I am not at all convinced that he has done half of what he claims he has. Just my humble opinion. And that's, that's really where I'm landing at right now. I do believe the gentleman has committed some fraud. I do not believe for an instant that he ran the fraud game in Las Vegas or that he was the king of Las Vegas like he, like he claims to be. I do not believe that he was associated with the Sinaloa cartel. I don't believe that for an instant. Now, both these individuals, um, Tony Sales and Alexander Hall, do they bring value? They do. But as I said in the previous episode, please understand where that value is coming from. That value is probably not coming from a criminal base of knowledge. It's coming from now being on the good guy's side and getting that good guy insight. So if you're looking for that criminal insight, experience, and understanding, probably not going to get it. So understand who you're hiring, why you're hiring them, where their base of knowledge is coming from. And yeah, I am. I'm going to tell you guys, it's not comfortable to call this shit out, but I call this shit out. All right. It's not the least bit comfortable to do that, but somebody's got to because I'm in an industry right now where nobody is, which leads me to the final point before we get on to the meat of the episode. This kind of leads into the meat of the episode. Joe Sullivan, former, former CISO for Uber. Let's pull up his LinkedIn page. Not his LinkedIn, his, uh, there it is, the Wikipedia. Joe's Wikipedia. Let's see, where you at, Joe? Where you at, Joe? There you are. Joe Sullivan's Wikipedia. And I'm going to, let me close out the stuff that I can close out here because I don't want some of the names exposed. There we go. So Joe Sullivan's Wikipedia. I'm going to share a screen because this, I mean, he's got one hell of a resume that absolutely needs to be shared. So this is Joe Sullivan's Wikipedia, and we're going to read directly from that. Joe Sullivan, born 1968, is an American internet security expert, having served as a federal prosecutor with the United States Department of Justice. He worked as a CISO at Facebook, Uber, and Cloudflare. For his role in covering up the 2016 data breaches at Uber, he was convicted October 2022 on federal felony charges of obstruction and misprision. Misprision is hiding a felony that you know about. That is a, most cases, it's a misdemeanor. All right. January 23, he took on the role of CEO of Ukraine Friends, a nonprofit focused on humanitarian aid to the Ukraine. And we'll go right over there and look at this too. Well, we're, oh, Joe, where you at, buddy? Heck, it was there a minute ago. Let's see if I can pull this up again. CEO of Ukraine Friends. Where did the story go? It was literally here a minute ago. Let me see if we can pull it up. Bear with me. Okay. Yeah, CEO Ukraine Friends. There we go. The story has disappeared. Never mind. I guess they finally, it would be the day that I am trying to do this show that they move it out there. But the CEO of Ukraine Friends, it talks about everything that Mr. Sullivan has done, a very glowing review. But we'll go through the career back on Wikipedia instead. It says, after law school, Sullivan spent the first eight years in the Department of Justice, having served as an intern at the DOJ. He worked with 
Robert Mueller's office. He served as assistant U.S. attorney in Nevada, Las Vegas. So that's no small job at all. Very, very hard work. From 2000 to 2002, he worked as assistant U.S. attorney in Northern District of California. Again, not a pie job at all. He was a founding member of the Computer Hacking and Intellectual Property Unit. Um, he was on the first prosecution for the under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So he put a lot of these friggin' pirates behind bars or got them fire or file uh, fined or what have you. Sullivan also worked on multiple cybercrime cases, including digital evidence, 9/11 investigation, economic espionage, child predator cases. I mean, the guy was doing some shit. All right, he was he, he was next level hardcore when it came to his job of prosecuting people who were doing wrong. And make no mistake, he signed on to do the right thing. He wanted a career of being a good guy. He said to himself, I want to make society better. I want to make everyone safe. It's my job. I want to make a career of making things safe for everybody. Then he decides to go private sector. He works at eBay for a while. Then he becomes CISO over at Facebook during the point in time. And here, I want to be honest with you. CISO at Facebook, I got to say, I'm not happy. I don't think he did a great job over there because only recently did Facebook start to get rid of a lot of the criminal channels and sites that are built into Facebook. Only recently. Certainly they were going hog wild crazy while Joe Sullivan was CISO over there. Matter of fact, as long as we're sharing information, I had an insider from Facebook tell me a few years back that they had this thing where they didn't want to take down the criminal channels and sites and all those conversations because they might, might be held liable for stuff that they had missed out on. Yeah, what do you think about that? Thank you, Joe Sullivan, for protecting our society. It wasn't until he moved over to Uber that things really started to fall apart for this guy. All right, so we're going to stop or share because I like to have my pretty face on the screen every now and then. So what happens over at Uber? These two attackers, these two criminals, I won't call them hackers, even though the media likes to call them hackers. They're not hackers. They used a social engineering technique to gain access. They stole a whole shitload of driver details and rider details. All right. These two attackers then contacted Uber and tried to extort them for $100,000. Joe Sullivan was the CISO. He's had a stellar career up until that point. No breaches whatsoever. Everything's been golden for him. The problem is, is now he's looking at a breach. You've got two attackers that are saying, hey, we're going to start selling all this information on the dark web unless you pay us off. What do you want to do? So Joe Sullivan says that we are not going to announce this breach. And here's part of the problem. Companies don't have to announce breaches. There's no regulation in place that makes them do that, which is another problem that needs to be friggin' addressed. But, you know, Congress and their infinite wisdom and all the lobbyists that pay them off all the time, it's evident that they don't care about the American people, companies, consumers, or victims. So Sullivan, since he doesn't have to report it, decides he's going to hide it. How's he going to hide it? Well, what we're going to do, what we're going to do is we're going to say that these two guys we're part of the bug bounty program that we've got. That's what we're going to do. Yes, I understand that the bug bounty program at Uber, we only pay a maximum of $10,000, but in their case, we're going to pay them $100,000. And they are going to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Never talk about this stuff at all. And that will allow me to hide this so that my career is not tarnished whatsoever. 
he tells the, he tells the people on the security team that he's going to share it with the board. The only person he shares that information with the board on is this dipshit CEO of Uber at the time, who is later done away with. New CEO comes in. Here's what's going on. Or it's what has happened. He fires Joe Sullivan out the gate. Now, these two attackers, they tell Mr. Sullivan, oh, no, we won't sell any of the data whatsoever. What do they do? Of course, they sell the data. This was that point in time when all these, all the Uber information in the world was on various dark web marketplaces being sold buku's amount. So, of course, the information gets sold. Joe Sullivan knew the real names of the attackers. Let that sink in a minute. He knew the real names of the attackers. Now, the truth of the matter is, is he didn't give a damn about the victims, the people's information who was compromised and later sold. The only thing he cared about was making sure that his career was not tarnished. So he decided to do this cover-up, this obstruction of justice. Now, these two attackers, not only do they sell that Uber data, they go on to victimize other companies with the exact same technique that they hit Uber with. Joe Sullivan knows who the real attacker, he knows their actual identities. Does he share that at all with any of these other companies being victimized? All these consumers, all these people being victimized? No, he doesn't. He keeps his damn mouth quiet. Now, he was sentenced last week. He was sentenced to three years probation and 200 hours of community service. That was his sentence. To say I am pissed about that is the understatement of the year. If there's anybody that deserves prison time, it's Joe Sullivan. Because part of justice, part of sentencing means, yes, you're, you want to make sure the guy's not going to do it again. He's not going to do it again because he's not going to be a CISO again. He's a felon, all right? He's not going to be hired as a CISO. So that's done. But part of sentencing also means that you want to deter other people from committing similar acts. A 200-hour community service time doesn't do that. You look at his career, all right? You look at all the good that he's done, and then you look at how he chose, because he chose to commit a crime and cover up as other people are being victimized, and then he doesn't get in for millions of dollars. I mean, this is millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. If a person, if a criminal from Telegram or the traditional dark web on Dread or one of these marketplaces were to do that exact same thing, the sentence that they would get in prison would be over 10 years. It'd be more like 15 or 20. All right. Joe Sullivan gets 200 hours of community service is what he gets. Something's wrong with that. This is an indication that we are on two different levels of justice in the United States. One for the common people and one for the rich. That's exactly what this is. So Sullivan does that. Is a 200-hour prison or you know, sentence going to deter anybody else? No. And what you do is, is future people who, who may be charged with similar crimes that are C-levels, you take that initial sentence as kind of the template as to what everyone else needs to get. No one else is really going to reach his level. And because of that, any other CISO or C-level exec that does these types of crimes, it can realistically be argued that they should not serve any prison time whatsoever. So there's effectively, now because of this sentence, there's effectively no deterrent in place whatsoever. I would call it a miscarriage of justice, but in truth, what it is, again, is an example of two different systems of justices depending on who you are. 
it gets a little bit worse. It gets a little bit worse because there's a whole shitload of people that are either keeping their mouth shut about this or they're supporting the guy, understanding that the guy allowed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to be victimized when he could have stopped it, when he could have stopped it. And you're still supporting this guy. And, and I got to say, I think a part of the problem is this whole click mentality that comes in from parts of the tech world. You know, we, we, we don't talk against our own. Oh, we'll point out these, these, these criminals on Telegram and on Dread and on the dark web all day long. But if it's one of ours that commits a crime, if it's one of, if it's one of these companies that we work with, we're not going to do that. I think, it's a, I think it's a shame. I think it's a goddamn shame truthfully. And with that, we take a break, and then we come back in, and we talk about these companies that help facilitate pandemic fraud. When we come back to The Brett Johnson Show. All right, so we are now back to The Brett Johnson Show, episode number 61, When the Good Guys Suck, part two. And yes, hey, I am more than aware that today's episode is a marathon session. My throat is already telling me that. The voice may start to give us some point, so please forgive that. But please indulge me in the length of today's episode because it is absolutely worth it. I think that the, the Q&A session that we had and the viewer comments, I think that that was outstanding. I truly do. There were some great people who were, who were giving comments and asking outstanding questions. I'm just happy I was able to answer some of those and give some insight, at least from my personal experience. All right. Uh, that being said, we are now into the meat of the episode, talking about pandemic fraud, how it happened, the criminal insight of that, and then finally those companies which helped to facilitate that crime that made it easier for those criminals to commit crime and how those companies profited millions, maybe billions of dollars at the end of the day from helping criminals commit those crimes. Needless to say, one hell of an episode today. Now, that being said, I grabbed my glasses like I was about to read something off the screen. Not quite yet. We're going to get there. This first section talks about, I'm going to talk about the pandemic and how the fraud happened and stuff like that. So you got to understand, when I was running Shadow Crew, one of the lessons that I taught, one of the things that I typically said constantly over and over again, maybe many times throughout the day is, hey, never act out of desperation. When you act out of desperation, you make poor choices. Things start to go awry. You get your ass caught and you go to prison. So don't act out of desperation. Calm your little ass down, get settled, make a choice, plot, plan, then decide. Never act out of desperation. The government in their infinite wisdom, they forgot or they may have never heard that rule at all because here's what happens. The pandemic pops off, all right? There was some worry, some really considerable legitimate worry about the economy going tits up. They were really worried that things were going to start to crash. Now, they didn't crash. That comes later. We're seeing that right now as it's estimated that 85% of all restaurants are going to ultimately go out of business because of the after effects of the pandemic. So we're going to see these kinds of things. We're seeing it right now with the recession, with inflation, all these other things, uh, with employment. You know, people, a lot of people don't want to work now. All of these are after effects 
of the pandemic and the way that was handled. Back then, the government was really worried that the economy was going to go bankrupt. They knew that people were going to be closed in, shuttered away, that there wasn't going to be a lot of businesses open, that people weren't going to be able to work, things like that. So they instituted stimulus programs in order to keep the economy propped up. All right. And they said to themselves, we'll put these in as fast as we can. So they did a variety of different stimulus programs. They did the PPP, they, which is the Paycheck Protection Program. They did the PUA, the Unemployment Insurance Program. They did EIDL. They did, they did SBA farm loans. They did a whole crap load of different types of programs in order to keep the economy boosted. But they put these programs into place with, with absolutely no preparation whatsoever. They were so desperate to get these things instituted that they made a poor choice. And that poor choice was... All of these programs were instituted with absolutely no security in place whatsoever for a space of at least, at least six months. Bear in mind what I'm saying there. When you're talking about fraud, as a, as a former fraudster now on the good guy side, typically you won't see a bunch of approvals coming in from maybe you're trying to commit credit card fraud using the Tor browser, all right? Typically, that's not going to happen. It's happened in a couple of instances over the years. Like for, for, for one, one story I can recount is back around 2014, 2013, 2014, Cureg, the website was being hit just night and day as hard as you please by these fraudsters using, using stolen credit card details, they'd order a couple, you know, they would do triangulation shipping or order several dozens of these things, and they'd list them all on eBay. And you had a shitload of Keurig coffee makers on eBay that year during Christmas season for sale at discount prices. Now, the way they were ordering those, because Keurig had no security in place whatsoever, is they were using the Tor browser to shop at Keurig. Completely unheard of, even back then. Nowadays, you don't you don't hear about the ability of one to use a, the Tor browser to commit fraud. That typically doesn't happen because you can see the Tor browser coming into your system. You don't know, no, we're not going to we're not going to allow that bullshit. But back then, that happened. What well, also happens with stimulus fraud? So you didn't have to worry about your IP. You could simply use the Tor browser to come in and start to file. That was just part of the problem. And that's just one example of that. But there was no security in place whatsoever. You could use the same IP. You could use the same device to file. You could uh, have foreign IPs. You could, to an extent, you could use the same identity over and over again to get PPP loans, farm loans, unemployment insurance, Blah, blah, blah. You could use synthetic identities, which is just complete madness when you think about it, because typically you can't use a synthetic identity to file for some sort of federal benefit. You can't do that. There's a reason that you can't get a home mortgage using a synthetic identity. You don't do that shit because it goes through the federal government. They're able to see that it was issued to a child. You're not going to get it. Or they're able to see that the, the, the social security number is just a fabricated number by the algorithm. You're not going to get it. But because there was no security in place with the, with the stimulus programs, people were able to use synthetic identities to file for those claims to a great deal of success. 
what happens is, is I started to notice, I got a call from uh, AARP, Washington Bureau. And I was asked a question because at that point in time, I was still an ambassador for AARP. And I would have these conversations with different offices and certainly out of the out of the Washington field office. So this gentleman calls me, Doug Shadell. He gives me a call one day and he's like, hey, Brad, have you heard about this unemployment fraud? Well, we were just a couple of months into the pandemic at that point in time. You know, the lockdowns and stuff like that. And the, the stimulus programs had just been instituted and things like that. And I was like, what are you talking about unemployment insurance? And he's like, do you know about it? I was like, yeah, I know how to commit unemployment fraud, but what's going on? And he started to tell me about this Nigerian group who had been filing fraudulent unemployment claims because of the amount that Washington State was paying on a weekly basis. And it was like 948, 1248, some bullshit like that. It was a decent amount of money. Unless you live in Washington State, where no amount of money evidently makes sure that anyone has anything near a decent livelihood. But if you're in Nigeria, that $1,000 a week, that's a shitload of money. Well, these Nigerians were filing unemployment claims, and they were being approved, and they had stolen, at, in, at the end of the day, they had stolen around $400 million. Well, over the next two weeks, these this unemployment story hits the news across the United States. USA Today is talking about it. All these other news organizations is talking about the amount of money that's being stolen by the Nigerians for unemployment fraud. Now, here's where this really comes into play, okay? Where it comes into play, yes, the Nigerians stole that money, all right? I'll talk about them more in a second, but... The way that cybercrime typically operates, the uh, the forums, the channels, the things that are out there, the dark web, the way that typically operates is fraudsters do their research, they read white papers, they read the news, they read indictments, they read things like that in order to get insight and knowledge of where they need to be concentrating their criminal techniques, what targets are out there, what what where is it profitable, okay? So we read the news, this shit hits the news and it's talking about unemployment. Now, it doesn't take a genius to start to figure out, well, shit, that's the government. They're not the best people in the world when it comes to security. And they quickly found out not only are, are they not the best people, but there's no security in place whatsoever. Because what you do is you read that story about the Nigerians. Then you start, you grab some identities. And you start to test things within a few hours. You start to test things. You grab a prepaid debit card or a Chime account or a Cash App account, and you start to test the files. And you start to see that, hey, they're being approved. Oh, shit. Then the next part of that test is, are they not only approved, but are they funded? And then you see they're funded. Once they become funded, you know that you are going to be successful at that crime. So you've tested, you found success, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're like, okay, let's scale this up. So what do you do? Well, at that point, you either go around to all the Walmarts, all the uh, service stations that offer prepaid debit cards, the Dollar Generals, places like that, and you start buying prepaid debit cards. No, you don't buy five or ten at a time because they flag that shit. You buy one at a time. So one store, one card, one store, one card. And you spend a couple, three days just getting you know, 20, 30 cards because you're going to be getting off those 20 or 30 cards, if you're filing for Washington State, you're going to be getting $30,000, $40,000 a week on that. So groovy, already making $30,000 to $40,000 a week. That's the way it typically works. Then once you start hitting that, you start to say, well, shit, 
every state offers unemployment. So then you start to test every state because of the federal government coming in. Everything's kind of a hybrid federal government state office. The state offices are shut down because of the pandemic. Everything's somewhat automated. So every state starts to work. And that is why you get billions, hundreds of billions of dollars that have been stolen through the pandemic just on unemployment insurance. Now, why did fraudsters go with unemployment? Because here's what actually happens. The PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, was a much better choice as far as money potential goes, or you know, lump sum goes, because the PPP gave up to a $2 million loan. It was self-certified. I mean, self, yeah, it was self-certified. They promised not to audit you, and the federal government was going to forgive that loan. So obviously, if you're a fraudster, $2 million is worth a hell of a lot more than $1,000 a week. But remember that acting in desperation. The government was so interested and so, so bent on getting these stimulus programs put out as quickly as possible, no security was in place. Well, that also has an effect on the fraud environment. Because in order for me to get $2 million sent to a bank account, I have to open the bank account because it has to be a bank account. First of all, it can't be a prepaid card. It can't be a Chime account. It can't be a Cash App account. It's got to be a bank account. So in order for me to do that, to find success there, I have to have that account aged and I have to have traffic on that account. If I just open up a brand new bank account and immediately have $2 million of a government deposit sent into that account, am I going to get my money out? No, by God, I'm not. They're going to lock that down. Most experienced fraudsters understood this. And because of that, they pivoted to unemployment insurance because it's very easy to run down to Walmart and get a prepaid card, open up a Chime account, a Cash App account. Those son of a bitches will accept $10,000 deposits all day, every day. And it scales beautifully. So most experienced fraudsters went to unemployment insurance. Now, that doesn't mean you didn't have fraudsters that were in PPP. You absolutely did. But those people already had, the, had bank accounts set up ready to go with something. Or, and this is where you see a lot of the arrests that take place. Or those fraudsters were not very skilled. And they used something to have the money deposited in that was related to them. Maybe they, they used their own business to commit the fraud. Maybe they used their own bank account to have the money deposited into or a friend's bank account or something like that. So when the investigation determined that fraud had been committed on PPP, investigators look at it and they say, well, where, where was the money deposited? So they say, well, let's go down and see what this house looks like. So they pull up this guy's yard. In the yard is a piece of shit Maserati, the Yugo of supercars. One agent looks at the other and says, you know, I think we're at the right place. Next thing you see is the Yugo of supercars, that Maserati on the back of a car hauler and the perp being frog marched out to the, to the police car. That's what happened. Most experienced fraudsters knew better than even try that. So they pivoted over to unemployment. That's why you see kids, 16-year-olds, on Telegram that were bragging about stealing $60,000 a week. I don't care what fraud people were talking about or were engaged in at that point in time, whether it be credit card fraud, new account fraud, account takeovers, bot attacks, um, synthetic fraud, 
HELOCs, student loan fraud, what have you, every fraudster that had any knowledge or experience whatsoever pivoted from those frauds over to stimulus fraud because that's where the money was. There was no security in place whatsoever. It was wide open to steal as much money as you possibly could for the space of at least six months. Okay, that's what happened. And the truth of the matter is, you can listen to Joe Biden as much as you want to. You can listen to law enforcement as much as you want to. The truth of the matter is, is that those experienced fraudsters will never be identified or arrested. That's the truth. Does crime pay? You're goddamn right it does. So that's the way that the pandemic actually worked. Okay. Now, after the stimulus programs go go away, they're phased out. And here's what's kind of interesting. And this, this blows my mind. I'm part of the fraud industry. And you would see these fraud professionals that would talk about after the pandemic's over, well, we're seeing fraud numbers increasing to points that we've never seen before. It's, it's insane. There must be all these new fraudsters. No, not necessarily. What happened was, is as they pivoted over towards stimulus fraud. As the stimulus programs went away, they, they're they not, it's their career. This is their job. They're not about to just go down and start flipping burgers. They're going to find some new area to profit. And guess where they go? They go back to where they had experience. And here's the other thing about this. The experience and the tools that they learned, the knowledge that they acquired committing, uh, committing credit card fraud or synthetic fraud, whatever fraud they were committing before they pivoted to stimulus, those tools translated very well to the stimulus programs. If you knew how to do credit card fraud, you could, you could do stimulus fraud all day long. Same thing for identity theft, anything else. It pivoted beautifully over to that. When the stimulus program ended, they just went right back to where they were going. Now, the numbers of fraudsters absolutely exploded at that point in time because People told their friends, hey, I'm making $60,000 a week on unemployment. Shit, man, how you doing that? And they tell them, well, sit down. It's easy. It's the government's giving money away. The government can't afford it. Why not? It's just the government you're stealing from. So you had the justification in place as well. All right. Now, after about six months, the government, state, and local start to institute security. They decided to institute security first by piecemeal, one one small security protocol after another, not understanding that that gave fraudsters time to adapt to each, each piece that they were implementing. So they started with like KBA, then identity verification, stuff like that. Well, fraudsters know how to get past KBA. They know how to get past identity verification. We're going to talk about that more as we go along in today's show. So it, they instituted a peace bill, thereby allowing more fraudsters, more experienced fraudsters to adapt to that in a very slow way, okay? So it was very easy for fraudsters to overcome that one step at a time as they instituted these programs. End of the day, we are looking at well over $1 trillion being stolen through these stimulus programs, money that could have went toward our economy, toward our infrastructure, toward businesses and individuals who actually needed it. Instead, it went toward fraudsters who profited from it, who will never be arrested, identified, prosecuted, anything else like that. 
So that's what happened. Now, I would like to show you, before we move on to the next segment of today's, the meat of today's episode, I'd like to show you some of the information that, that was shared on these criminal channels. Specifically, I'm talking Telegram. So here's, here's the deal. Over the years, the definition of the dark web has actually changed. It used to be specifically meaning the Tor browser and the websites that were used accessible only using the Tor browser, okay? And they were .onion addresses. So you that, that was the issue. Now, the problem with that is that there's a lot of what's called friction when it comes to using the Tor browser. The user experience is somewhat bogged down because you have to know the exact website you go to. You have to know how to configure Tor properly or you're going to be identified. There's no search engine. The uh, A lot of the websites have these crazy, insane CAPTCHA systems that you have to bypass, that you have to go through in order to access the website. Not only that, but once you access the website, most marketplaces right now require you to have PGP keys registered and in place, and you have to share those across the board. So there's a whole lot of friction, and that's just part of it, a whole lot of friction across the traditional dark web. Not only that, but law enforcement has gotten extremely adept at identifying those individuals who access the dark web. Now, there's a few theories on that. One of the theories that really kind of holds water is law enforcement owns a lot of the entry and exit nodes that people use to access the tour. They, use a, they, they own a lot of those network nodes, all right? And when you own all of the nodes, you can see who's coming in and who's coming out, and you can match them together and identify that son of a bitch. So, and that is absolutely one of the things that happens. Not only that, but they talk too much. Okay, so go figure. But law enforcement is very adept at identifying, shutting down marketplaces, everything else. A lot of friction across the board. Because of that, we've, we've seen a migration of a lot of criminals looking at smaller and smaller encrypted messaging apps until telegram comes around telegram right now is the wild west of cybercrime. it is friction free it's an app you can download to your phone you can run it on your browser or your desktop what have you it's encrypted out of the gate it has a search word function you don't have to know where you're going you can do a keyword search and find whatever the hell you're wanting to find illegally all right it's also owned by a russian who is very anti-law enforcement. He simply does not answer any law enforcement request. And that equates to cyber criminals being able to do whatever the hell they want to do on a friction-free, easy-to-use environment. No wonder it's taken off like gangbusters when you're coming when you're talking about cybercrime. The reason I mentioned all that and wanted to give that, that uh, breakdown like that, you'll notice I'm putting on my glasses because we're going to share the screen. All right, so... Let's see what we got here. I want to make sure I'm sharing the right things. <laughs> All right. So this is Telegram. <clears throat> this is what Telegram looks like. This is uh, a user that I have actually purchased. And I've shown this on another one of my shows. I'm going to show it again. I'm going to show a few other tutorials as well, because I want people to get an idea, an understanding of how information is shared and exchanged across criminal environments. And it's, it, it's either in the channel by asking the questions and gaining knowledge like that, or it's buying tutorials like this. So this is the unemployment insurance tutorial. I think I gave like $140 or something like that. I, I mentioned the price I paid for it on um, 
on the show about SNAP benefit fraud or food stamp fraud. So please do tune into that. But here we go. So the tutorial delivered says required tools, social security number, personal last name, DOB, RDP. So that's a remote access or a good VPN. So they want to make sure that you've got a good different IP address. Create an email mentioning SSN details, Google voice number or text now. So any type of voice over IP number. Now remember this because this is extremely important when we get to that third part that talks about how these companies help to facilitate a lot of the online crime or fraud that was happening against the uh, stimulus programs, okay? So I'm going to go ahead and knock this in. You guys may have to blow it up when you start to, uh, to go through the channel, but he walks you through everything that you need to do to commit food stamp fraud against the state of Massachusetts, all right? Tells you, here's the thing where you, this is what you should answer yes and no to. More about me, more about me. Number of people in the household. There's the uh, the first person's name, Susan. Susan is born, he says that, uh, the fraudster says that Susan was born in 2015. One of the things that I did experience with this is I found out that the dependents for food stamp programs, it had been a long time since I'd committed food stamp fraud, but uh, the dependence on food stamp programs don't have to be real people. You don't have to steal anyone's identity. You can simply say it's a child that doesn't have a social security number, and the system will count that as a benefit or as a dependent. So you get benefits for that person. So he walks through every single thing that you need to input to get SNAP benefits and everything that you need to say that you're having trouble paying and how much money you make a month and what your expenses are a month and any type of medical cost and blah, blah, blah. Do you need a card? I mean, he, everything is walked through and that's just one tutorial on that. That's the food stamp tutorial. It's not just food stamps. You have things like here's a FEMA method and this was given away free. Somebody just wanted to give this stuff away. All right. Every other tutorial that I've pulled up today is free, posted for just sharing knowledge and information. This is how to commit FEMA fraud, just a quick 10-step walkthrough on how to do that. 10 steps, I mean, this, this is kind of a shitty little tutorial right here. There are much better FEMA tutorials. Here is this one right here. Well, let me take it up to the top. So you all file with Florida Full. So you need a, you need a full Florida identity profile to file. And here's the affected counties. That was the affected counties from the hurricane or storm or what have you. So these are all the, the counties that were affected that are getting FEMA support. So when you apply, you need to make sure that you're saying you're in one of these counties. Use your banks to accept payments. No prepaid banks accepted. So at least FEMA at this part, they were smart enough to say, oh, no, hell no. We ain't going to allow. No oh, I'll get back to that page in a second. We're not going to allow any type. We ain't going to allow any type of prepaid cards on this. But it also may be that the deposit of money is so high that a prepaid card would not accept it. And remember, a prepaid debit card or a prepaid bank is only going to accept about a $10,000 limit a day. FEMA fraud, they're paying a max of like $35,000. You can't have $35,000 deposited into those bank accounts. You have to have existing accounts to do that. Okay, But this tutorial walks through, it's 59 pages. Pay attention there. This tutorial is 59 pages. Somebody sat down and made a 59-page tutorial on how to defraud 
the FEMA system. Everything, everything you'll need is right there. He's got uh, the PII stuff blocked out. And there's the person's date of birth. There is uh, a fake email that he's put in. But he walks through how you should answer everything. Of course, he's got it watermarked, look like, so that nobody steals his tutorial, so you know exactly where it's coming from. But there's everything that you need to input and how to do it all. Okay, and there's 59 pages of that right there. I'm not going to go through each one separate. There's 59, and there's where you input. There's where I want to be paid. So everything across the board. The dark web, the criminal environments, this is one thing that this is a point that I've made several, several times in the past. Criminals are open source. And I say we because I used to be one. We share and exchange information across the board in a very open manner because we know that by everyone working together, networking together, we all become more, more knowledgeable and more profitable at the end of the day, it, it, it takes a village. You cannot commit these crimes just by yourself and hope to have any degree of success. It goes into that three necessities of cybercrime that I've spoken about. Gathering data, committing crime, cashing out. One criminal can't do all three things, or he can, but someone else is better in an area than he is. So he networks with those other people in order to get more profit at the end of the day. Moving right along to other tutorials. Here is an SBA tutorial. You're wondering how to defraud the Small Business Association? This guy's doing it with the real estate fools. Address to receive check, business documents. There's the business documents you're going to need for this to be successful. You need a tax document, you need a business license, W-2 document, pay stub, Form 944 from 2021. And he walks through every single thing. This is a 19-page tutorial. You think that it's just people telling you, hey, you do this, you do this, you do this. No, these people actually break this down in an idiot-proof, step-by-step manner where you can commit these types of frauds. And these tutorials are free. Here's a New York unemployment insurance benefits tutorial. And this one is 29 pages. And again, he walks you through, and you'll notice he's watermarked. He walks you through every single thing that you need to commit that specific type of fraud. Here is another unemployment. This is unemployment for the state of Indiana, a tutorial how to do fraud Indiana. And it breaks you down. How do I file? How am I eligible? What happens after I file? It answers all these questions for you, tells you how to answer them, and walks you through in 22 pages on how to defraud the state of Indiana on unemployment benefits. You want to know why cybercrime is successful these are prime examples. This is the way cybercrime operates. People share and exchange information. You don't have to just buy tutorials. There are live instruction classes. You don't need a live instruction class at the time to defraud the federal government on stimulus benefits. It was pretty much idiot proof. A tutorial was all you needed. Some of these tutorials, when they were being sold, I saw uh, FEMA tutorials for as low as $10. The uh, food stamp tutorial, two to two fifty, but you, I bargained it down to one forty. Um, PPP farm loan, those types of tutorials would really depend. It really depended on when it was wide open. Those tutorials were cheap. We're talking thirty to fifty dollars a piece. Once 
governments started to implement proper security, you would see some of those tutorials in the several hundred dollar range. Now, that's the way it operates, okay? Now, you don't have to buy tutorials. You can take live instruction classes. Those range anywhere from $300 to $3,000 a piece, or you don't have to spend any money. Typically, you saw the free tutorials that I was able to pull up. You don't have to spend any money. You can simply sit in the channel, learn from that environment, ask questions in that environment, okay? And you will typically get the answers that you're looking for. You'll have to put up with a lot of bullshit because English speakers like to run their mouths. That's one of the one of the ways that law enforcement identifies these idiots is they talk too much. So, but they love to run their mouths about anything and everything. So understand that, okay? Now that being said, that paints the picture for the way the pandemic fraud operated, the way that the tutorial system worked, what it shared, what it looked like. Okay. Um, let me show you. I meant to I meant to actually tour Telegram just a moment because I, I showed you the tutorials from Telegram, but not Telegram itself. So let's let's pull that up and let you see what uh, a Telegram channel looks like. It takes just a second here. Let me share the screen. That way we are fully educated for those people who have never been on Telegram. And I know there are some because I've been at a couple of banking conferences recently and I've asked if anyone's ever been on Telegram and they've not. And I've been horribly, horribly surprised by that. All right, so share screen, Telegram. Okay, so this is what Telegram looks like on your desktop. Okay, and um, I've got it running on Chrome right now. This is the AIO crime channel. You see, it's been actually, it's been less than a day since I've checked in. There are already 7,700 posts uh, from the last time I checked in. So, just to go down to the last post, there we go. So, the most recent, and you'll see there's a lot of advertisements for different types of cybercrime products and services. Here's a uh, this guy's selling uh, prepaids. So cash out accounts and logs, you can get Visa prepaids, Amex, MasterCards, and do reward systems, things like that. This other guy is a long-term running business as well, with no disrespect. He's selling cash app transfers, PayPal transfers, so cash transfers. You uh, So you, you give him $10 and he promises to fund your account for $1,000. You give him $20, he promises to fund your account for $1.5, all the way up to $60. If you pay him, he'll fund your account for $4,000. Now, typically I call bullshit on any type of advertisement like that, because if he's able to do that, why would he do that for somebody else when he can go and get his own cards or partner with someone and they can be millionaires in the space of just a few weeks? Doesn't make a lot of sense. So typically you, you try to apply what I like to call criminal common sense to a lot of the advertisements. Of course, the problem with Telegram is you've got a lot of newbies on there, people who, who don't understand the dynamics of online fraud. They don't understand anything at all. They're just trying to come in and make money. And they see some bullshit ad like this, and they're like, oh, man, I don't, all I got to do is go get a prepaid debit card, and this guy will start to fund me. No, this guy's going to rip your ass off is what he's going to do. So buyer beware, D-Y-O-R, do your own research. Don't be an idiot. Compared to this guy restocked, he's, he's selling different types of account access from anything from Instacart to Office Depot, BarkBox, uh, Starbucks, etc. I would absolutely imagine that his accounts are completely legitimate, well, from a criminal point of view, and real. They exist. He's going to deliver what he's telling you he's going to deliver. 
Airbnb flights. So this is a guy that is booking um, Airbnb and travel, uh, you know, vacation services for 50% of whatever the actual uh, retail total is. So you go to Airbnb and you find some place like this little tent, maybe charging him, you know, $500 a night. He'll book it for you and only charge you $250 a night. Okay, so you see all kinds of different types of advertisements. Here's you credit cards for sale, $10, no replacement. So he's going to sell you a $10 card. He offers no guarantee with it. It's an as-is card. If that card is dead, if that card's only got $2 on it, he's not going to replace it. But it's only going to cost you $10. If you want a replacement policy, which means it's dead, um, the, the available balance wasn't high, whatever, that'll run you $25. Okay, You pay with either Bitcoin or Ether, which... I would disagree that he needs to be accepting either of those. I would say he needs to accept Monero because Monero is anonymous. Okay. Bitcoin and Ether can absolutely be tracked. Somebody needs to educate some of these criminals on these channels because some of them are idiots. But you see, this is what some of these channels actually look like. Okay. Moving on down, and it's not just... It's not just criminal stuff. So this is the Radiant Investment Group. This is an investment group for cyber criminals. And they talk about the signals and everything else of all these cryptocurrencies and some of the companies and everything, what you need to do, how you should invest your criminal earnings. Okay, so that is Telegram in a nutshell. And I just wanted to share that. So if anyone's never been on Telegram, they're scared to go, what have you, at least you have some view of what that bullshit actually looks like. Okay, let me go ahead and shut that down and get ready for the uh, for the next bit here. Because the next bit, yeah, there we go. Let me make sure we show that. Okay, so that sets the stage for pandemic fraud. Moving over into, you know, I've got this meat of the episode broken down into three different sections. Moving over into the next section, the criminal insight or the criminal view of things. I've already given that to a large extent on the first part. What I would like to add to that, and this is going to be a much shorter section, what I would like to add to that is I was very fortunate. I've got people both on the good guy side of things and on the bad guy side of things who respect me. And, and I'm going to tell you guys, the way you earn respect is don't be an asshole. I know that I come off as an asshole sometimes, but uh, I am not judgmental. I am not. I, I'm judgmental against uh, uh, when it comes when the when when the shit's hitting the fan. You take these companies like like Chargebacks, nine eleven, Binance. Uh, you take Joe Sullivan. I'm judgmental as hell about that because you have signed on to do the right damn thing. That's what you've said you wanted to do with your life out of the gate. All right. And then you've become a hypocrite. So I, I'm very judgmental to hypocrites, that hypocrisy. And I'm going to, I like to, I'm going to call that out whether you're a telegram criminal or whether you're a, a company that is just screwing over a shitload of people. All right. I, I do believe in doing that. That's, that would be my tick right there. That's when I become this pure asshole all of a sudden. Now, um, the point I'm getting at is the re the reason that I am able to uh, to engage with criminals and them talk with me is that I don't come off as judgmental. I've actually been there. I know what that life is like. All right, I know the pressure. I know the anxiety. Um, I'm also aware of the cognitive dissonance 
that is rampant throughout that environment. I've yet to meet really, I've met a couple of criminals who, who say that they know they're doing wrong and that it's their choice to do that and bang, 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 bang. And I've even believed those, those few people that I've talked to who have told me that. Most are not like that. Most will tell you because of their cognitive dissonance, their faulty thinking, most will tell you, I don't have any other choice. This is the only way I can make money. This is the only thing I know how to do. Why would I go to school making X amount of dollars and pay tuition when I'm already stealing this much money? These are the types of excuses you get. And it shows that cognitive dissonance. But I don't judge these people because you know what? I used to be right there with you. I used to say that same damn shit. I know where you're coming from. I'm going to try to talk to you. I'm not going to preach to you. I'm going to say, hey, get out of this shit before you go to prison because you're going to lose all your friends, your family members, associates. You're going to, you're going, your life is going to stop. You're going to get out and you're going to have absolute hell when you get out of prison. That's, that's the kind of conversations I have. But I say it with respect because I've been there. I've done that. And because of that, I get people who talk to me because they know I'm not calling them a piece of shit. And that is so rampant on the good guy side. As a matter of fact, on tele on uh, on LinkedIn, there's been there's been people time and time again, these fraud professionals who come out, well, what should we call? What should we call all these criminals? Uh, you know, calling them criminals or fraudsters, that's being too nice. You know, guys, just do your fucking job. How about that? You want you want to know what the criminal mindset looks like and how criminals operate and everything? Go hang out. Go hang out. Don't be judgmental, and you might learn something. That's not saying they're not doing bad. They absolutely are. But you're trying to learn from these individuals as well. If you expect that type of, of discussion and rapport and relationship, you don't get that by denigrating someone. Okay? And I again, they are absolutely breaking the law. They absolutely need to be in prison. Okay? But have some courtesy goes back to that uh, that thing we were talking at the beginning of this show two hours ago about uh, faith, the Bible, and stuff like that. Uh, treat people the way that you would want to be treated, regardless of how you have been treated. One of the big takeaways in life, I would say. Now, I'm, I'm through preaching. <laughs> so, anyway, I'm, I'm, I was looking at the screen here. Before we get to uh, to the third part, I was fortunate enough that a criminal reached out to me. One of these cyber criminal fraudsters reached out to me. He uh, wanted to be called Wally because he had eaten Walmart alive in the mid-2000s, and I have no doubt that he did. He served prison time. He has also committed a wide, wide swath of stimulus fraud, from PPP to unemployment to SBA farm loans, things like that. So he was very experienced with that. He contacted me on one of these platforms that, I sh that I'm on social media with, and I had no idea who he was. He simply said, hey, I, I got some stuff to tell you. I'd like to talk to you. Well, here's the thing. I talk to most anybody. Typically, my, my discussions are somebody who is, who is coming out of a life of crime or someone who has been victimized or someone who has been abused, and they, they want to, uh, to have just, just to talk with me because you know I share a lot of that on my shows. I agreed to have a phone call with this guy, and it turns out he was a criminal. So I'm like, shit, I wish I had recorded this. I didn't record it. He didn't want me to, so I was I was more than happy that. So I'm just going to talk about some of the stuff that he shared with me. And he was in a Telegram group 
of about 40 people. And overall, they stole about $35 million. I think, I think he gave a quote between 26 and 35, something like that. But you know, tens of millions of dollars is what they stole through stimulus programs. And he was telling me that these companies, you know, Blue Vine, Money Lion, Cabbage, all these other people, all these other companies that were out there, that it was very easy to steal money from. And he gave an example. He was talking about, you know, PPP for several months. I call it six months because that's what it was. I don't think he really knew how many months because they were so busy stealing money. But for the space of several months, he says that it was wide open, that any PPP loan that you put through would be approved. And they were not doing PPP loans for $2 million. They were doing PPP loans for the minimum. The minimum was $20,833. I know because I got two PPP loans, which I was entitled to. So they were defrauding PPP loans for 20 k at a pop, all right? And uh, he told me at one point that he had, you know, 35 phones, each phone connected to an account, and each phone was expected to fund. So you can figure, I know, let's let's add it up. You know, if his 20 of his 35, little calculator here. I mean, I could I could do it. Let's see, there's the calculator app. Let's share it because it'll look good. <laughs> it'll look good on the video. All right, let's see here. Where are we at? We're at share screen, buddy. Share screen. There's our calculator. So we had 35 phones times $20,833. So he profited from that one instance $729,155. All right. And his entire group of, you know, 35, 35, 40 people were doing the exact same thing. Not a one-time thing but on a weekly or monthly basis. So he made pretty good bank is what he did, all right? And then what he says is, is as they're shutting down, they get to the point where they deny every PPP loan that's coming through. All of it shuts down. Now, I've got documents I'm going to go through here in a minute that discuss why it shuts down, all right? But all the PPP stuff starts over, so they pivot over to the farm loan. The farm loan these co these fintech companies did not stop. So what happens with the PPP? The, the the PPP starts being rejected. The the money comes in and is immediately bounced back to the sender. Farm loans didn't work that way. Farm loans, these fintech companies accepted the money, and then instead of closing the account down like they were immediately doing with the PPP loans, which is what they started to do, instead of closing the account immediately. They informed the fraudster that, hey, we're going to close your account in seven days. You've got seven days to transfer all the money out of these accounts. And that's the way that worked. He was telling me about some of the security that took place. So initially, you, you could use the same phone over and over again. And I've got stuff that's going to verify that in a minute. You could use the exact same device. You could use the exact same IP number over and over again. As a matter of fact, for SBA loans, you could use the same individual. The only verification that they had was that the that that the money for that individual, say Brett Johnson, somebody stole my identity and was using Brett Johnson to file for a farm loan. So if I have it deposited to a Chase account, it would go through and approve. Now, I couldn't use Brett Johnson again for that same Chase account. 
but I could use the exact same Brett Johnson identity for a Wells Fargo account or a Bank of America account or some other account like that. That's the way that these things were actually operating at that point in time. He told me that one of these companies, I think it was Wampley, is Wampley or Blue Vine? No, I'm sorry, is Blue Vine or Money Lion? He told me that this, that they, that they instituted identity verification. Specifically, they they first started by just wanting a copy of the driver's license until they found out now these son of a bitches are putting in fake driver's license. So then they said, well, we want liveness detection. So the way that these fraudsters got past the liveness detection. So liveness detection is when I show you my ID and the security company, the verification service, is actually able to see that I'm moving my head back and forth. They can see that it's a live environment. So the way these fraudsters were getting past this is they would go and get a mannequin and they would hold the mannequin and simply turn the mannequin side to side with a photograph of the individual plastered on its face. And guess what? It was passing liveness detection. And that lasted for six weeks before they actually got a little bit better liveness detection in. So this is the stuff that was going on over and over again. And, and a lot of these companies, the way these channels work, all right? Now, he was on a private Telegram channel. You had, you had dozens, if not hundreds, of public criminal Telegram channels as well. Companies were flagged as to which ones were easiest to get these loans for. So you had Cabbage, you had Wampley, you had Blue Vine, you had Money Lion, you had Blue Acorn. They were known. These, this is where you need to go to apply for these services because they're the easiest ones to hit. They are quote unquote wide open. So that sets the stage for the third part of the meat of today's episode. Those companies which help to facilitate pandemic fraud. Now here's the thing. I have um, I've struggled on how I need to do this because I've got a boatload. I have a lot of people that reach out to me who are whistleblowers, all right? And they either tell me something or they send me documents that no one else is seeing right now. Like, for example, a few years ago, I had uh, I had people talking to me about Synchrony Bank, some of the uh, the, the practices that they were doing against their, their customers, their customers being small businesses. Uh, people like that. And that resulted in me ultimately calling them a bunch of assholes in a very public fashion um, without specifically mentioning what was going on. But I have these whistleblowers reach out to me. I've had a couple of people from uh, uh, Green Dot a few years ago. And Green Dot's had a few whistleblowers over the years, but they were telling me that how Green Dot was helping to facilitate cybercrime. That, hey, a lot of people at Green Dot know that a lot of the money that's being made at that company is from cyber criminals laundering money, and they're all right with it. So I had people that were telling me that, okay? This thing about the pandemic. I had an individual who has sent me a load of confidential documents, all right? I am not going to share or really discuss anything that's off of those confidential documents. Okay, I'm, I may paraphrase some stuff. Um, I'm going to go through a, a couple of conversations. And there are there's 
one part of the document document that is not confidential that I can use. I, I'm sharing. So let me walk through some of this stuff real quick on what we're actually talking about. Okay, because there's been a lot of news recently about that. So here is from, let's see what, uh, this is actually from. This is from Banking Dive, the SBA bars FinTech's Wampley and Blue Acorn after the PPP report. So here's the House panel, and I'm, I'll have all these links, and everything's going to be timestamped because this is a horribly long episode. But you can access the actual congressional report about how FinTech's facilitated fraud in the Paycheck Protection Program. The name of this article is this is from Arizona Central. Uh, this is about how an Arizona company co-founded by a newscaster made millions of dollars on fraudulent PPP loans. And this is what we're talking about today, how these companies like Blue Acorn made millions of dollars, how the CEOs and the C-level people became rich processing these types of loans. All right, so here is pandemic relief fraud report says online financial company CEOs and families got rich. There's that Arizona son of a bitch who's got his new Porsche Cayenne. Or take on Porsche take on does zero to 60 in 2.6 seconds. And who paid for that? You guys did. Because at the end of the day, all of that stimulus fraud goes back to the taxpayer. The state of California, in excess of $40 billion, probably $100 billion, and just in unemployment fraud. How are they paying for all that fraud? They're raising the unemployment tax from $20 to $420 per employee over the space of the next nine years. So the government doesn't pay for that. We pay for that. We bought this some bitch, his Porsche Taycan. Here's a Washington Post article. I'm not going to pay for it, and I've already done all of my you know, bullshit this year or this month for reading Washington Post articles, but I'll link it anyway. Here's a congressional report. Another article, congressional report says financial technology or fintech companies fueled rampant PPP fraud. Blah, 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 blah. I will tell you out of the gate that two of the favorite words of any fraudster worth their salt are fin and tech. It's like it's it's almost as it's almost a, a sexual feeling when you hear fintech because you know that the services that they're offering are extremely easy, extremely user-friendly. You also know that probably no fraud analyst at all has looked at the product that they're putting forth that it's just been some engineer. And they've typically told the fraud analyst to go home and shut the hell up. And because of that, it's able to be hit with fraud. Whoa, 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 whoa. So that, uh, that paints a picture of that. I'm gonna sh I'll share all those links in the... Uh, in the show notes on YouTube and also on Spotify, so you can look at those. Now, let me get to where I'm going, where I can actually share some of this stuff. Let's see what we're talking about. I think, and this is not marked confidential until the addendum, which is. Okay, so we're going to go through some of this stuff as soon as I cut off. This right here. All right. This is talking about Harvest and Wampley. Let's see here. Wampley's assurances and the, I don't want to talk about. Okay. So this is uh, a letter to, let's go ahead and share screen. So you guys at least have some visual representation of what I'm talking about today. 
Let's go ahead and share a screen. And this is not confidential, so I can talk about this. This is page three of uh, a letter sent to the Honorable James E. Clyburn, politician. And uh, for the below questions, unless otherwise instructed, let me make sure here. I was saying all those assurances. In fact, Harvest believes that it identified and reported more ineligible and or fraudulent applications than if it had simply been performing a manual review. So you got to figure and what they're talking about on this section right here is that most of the reviews were automated. Okay. And understand that there weren't a whole lot of people in businesses. Most reviews were automated, which makes it very easy for a criminal to come in and start to profit. Here's a breakdown of how companies profited. They profited the, the, the percent that each fintech was paid for each loan that they were processing. Okay, lenders' fees for processing PPP loans were prescribed by the SBA. So the Small Business Association are the people who said, this is what we're going to pay you for processing these loans. Okay, so 5% for any loan of not more than $350,000. So somebody, you know, $20,000 loan, we're going to give you 5%. $349,000 loan, we're going to give you 5%. If it's $350,000 to $2 million, we're only going to pay you 3% of that loan. And if it's a $2 million loan or more, we're going to give you 1%. And that was up until December 27th of 2020. At that point, the SBA paid lenders the following amounts. They paid 50% or $2,500 for loans of not more than $50,000. So they gave you, if you if you processed a loan of $20,000, that fintech would get $10,000. If you processed a loan of $40,000, that fintech would profit $20,000. They'd profit half of that, all right? 5% of loans from 50% up to $350,000. So that was a processing fee. That's what you profited. 3% from 350K to 2 million, 1% for 2 million plus, all right? Finally, the SBA paid lenders fees for processing all second draw PPP loans. So remember, you had the first round of PPP and then the federal government decided, hey, one loan's not enough. We're gonna give people a second loan. So on the second loan, Pretty much the same thing on the second loan, 50% or $2,500. I'm sorry, whichever is less. Okay, so disregard that. So they made at least, at most, they would make $2,500 per loan. Okay, whichever is less for loans of not more than $50,000. 5% for loans of not more than 50 to 350K. And then 3% of loans above 350K. That was for the second round of the PPP. Okay, so that's how that stuff actually worked. And this talks about that. And here's, a, here's an interesting thing about talking about some of the profit. So based on the U.S. partnership income tax return for the tax year of 2021, harvest ordinary business income was $356 million. Based on the U.S. partnership tax income for the year 2020, Ordinary business income was $29 million, okay? So that's what they normally make, okay? So let's go down because I I think it may say here what they actually profited. It was several hundred million dollars at the end of the day. Harvest, okay, based on harvest total deductions were $48 million for 2021, for 2020. Total, redu total deductions were $34 million. 
moving right along because okay that's the end of that okay here we go harvest made a total of 350 million dollars in distributions for physical year 2021 of those distributions 225 million dollars was allocated to the medalist partners opportunity master fund harvest majority member and 41 million dollars was allocated to harvest other three members all right so that ends what i can publicly share okay or at least you know bring up the screens so moving right along and talking about the way this actually was actually operating and stuff like that um there comes a point when they start to notice the fraud that's taking place and and some of the communications that's taking place here is from uh, toby scammel the ceo or scamel the ceo of wampley all right and he says uh he's he's replying to some people and at one point he says related to ppp we have a list of compromised social security numbers and bank accounts that are definitely associated with fraud we believe that these should be blocked or at least flagged as high risk across all sba programs i offered to share with the oig's office but they suggested that this was more of a policy issue we can provide the summit group or any other company if help we can provide to the summit group or any other company if helpful helpful the vast majority of these are upstream of sba he makes another point our lender partners need to withdraw tens of thousands of applications from sba approved in etran due to fraud we believe that the manual withdrawal process will take too long for lenders which could cause a program accounting issue, namely that the program will run out of funding before those loans can be statused correctly in ETRAN. Our team can help consolidate this issue into a flat file or figure out how to enable lenders to do this by, by API. Okay, so what's going on here is, and I, reading through these documents, it's real, and I've got the. There are like eight hundred pages of documents, but reading through these documents, what you're seeing is, is you're seeing a very shitty security on behalf of the SBA, basically non-existent. Okay, and then you're seeing the fintechs coming in, and a lot of the fraud analysts are recognizing those issues. All right. The fraud, the fraud team there is seeing, hey, this is fraud. This is fraud. This is fraud. But there's 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 a few things that's happening. As as the company may be trying to report it to the SBA or saying, hey, we can give you these socials so you can ban them across the board. SBA is coming back and saying it's a policy issue. You know, policy has to be changed. So they're not acting on it. The fraud teams and there's there's indicators here about the number of fraud analysts that were working at these companies. Pre-pandemic, the fraud analyst at one company was like 78. During those two specific years of the pandemic, those fraud analysts, the fraud team gets reduced to in the 30s. So they were being downsized as fraud was coming up. At the same time, you've got the fraud analysts are seeing the fraud, but it's not their money. They're being approved from the SBA. They're just coming in to to take that and the overall thought process is what do we need to do they're they're not raising flags in this system how do we how do we cope? so there's a lot of of just 
in action that's going on. They know it's happening. I'm going to go through some of the conversations in a minute. They know it's happening, but they're failing to act on anything. Now, where is that failure to act coming from? They're talking about it in the Slack channel. That failure to act is coming from management. The management is, tip, is really the people who need to pull the trigger on this. But guess what? Management's out busy buying Porsche take cans at $154,000. We're going to talk about what they were paid during the pandemic as well. So I want to read, read through this because this gives you an idea for anybody out there that's trying to build security in a company. All right. This gives you an idea of everything you need to look at and some of the problems and issues. Uh, this is also something I can't share on screen, but I'm going to recount it. All right. So in recent days, we've seen a significant increase in fraudulent applications that contain stolen identities. Thousands of these applications have become approved by the Small Business Association, indicating that the processes used by SBA to detect and prevent identity fraud are having a minimal impact. We did a cursory SVOG, EIDL, and RF, RRF programs and observed that they are likely to have the same vulnerabilities as the PPP program. So PPP program had all these vulnerabilities and they simply translated the same vulnerabilities translated to all the other programs that were in the stimulus systems. All right, so here are some recommendations that may be applied to detect, prevent, and investigate fraud across government programs and by private participants. Number one, block all international IP addresses and all anonymous IPs. That's a damn good idea. And that was not being done. And he says, we've seen spikes in fraud from Ghana, Nigeria, and Pakistan in the last two weeks. The geographies of attacks changes, and therefore all international traffic should be blocked at the firewall. Most attackers mask their traffic with VPNs, proxies, or TOR. This is unlikely to have any impact on legitimate applicants. IP traffic must be blocked at all levels, including by any third-party solution. And it gives in, in parentheses, DocuSign, LexisNexis, ID.me, payment processor, etc. All right, so Again, pay attention here. This is this is a nice walkthrough of the type of security and what's going on with that that you need to be implementing at your specific company. Block all voice over IP numbers using Twilio or similar block voice over IP numbers from being used for sign-up, verification, or notifications. Associated accounts slash applications should be viewed as very high risk. So if you've got an account that's coming through that's connected to a voice over IP, Google Voice number, what have you, text now, that should absolutely send your fraud flags through the fucking roof, all right? Database slash KBA checks are widely exploited. Most digital KYC solutions, know your customer, are being systematic or systemically, I'm sorry, systematically exploited including the LexisNexis-powered DocuSign ID check, ID.me, and Persona. Database checks for name, address, social security number are routinely passing because identities have been stolen. No shit, Sherlock. Block temporary paper or foreign IDs. U.S. fake IDs are passing digital analysis, manual inspection, and barcode scanning. 
understand what we just said there. You've got a lot of security companies that claim that, oh, we've got, you know, we scan that, we scan the barcode. They can't get that barcode right. Here you've got a fintech that's telling you in no uncertain terms that fake IDs are passing digital analysis, manual inspection, and barcode scanning. Other IDs should not be accepted. Expired IDs don't appear to be a strong indicator of fraud at the moment. Bear that in mind. Here's another one. Use of video selfies with strict, use video selfies with strict liveness checks. Dolls, mannequins, remember what I told you about the criminal that I, was, that I talked to. Dolls, mannequins, masks, animations, and deep fakes are exploiting technical holes in video selfie technology, including liveness checks that require head movement, blinking, and mouth movement. Videos and images should be manually reviewed. So I've bitched a lot about ID.me in the past. This is one of the things that ID.me got eaten alive with, okay? And they're not the only ones. There were other companies eaten alive with that as well. Block online banks at their routing number. And what he says is, is he says, Walmart Money, Green Dot, Vero, Lilly, and others like them are all strongly correlated to fraud and fund transfers and should be blocked to these banks. The routing number should be blocked. The fact that someone has an account open with one of these companies should not be reassuring. Their KYC processes are so weak that they are irrelevant and instead should be viewed as a reason to classify their application as high risk. And I've spoken about this for years. The use of prepaid debit cards is an absolute criminal for, criminal, for, for criminals, it is fantastic because KYC is pretty much non-existent. As a company, you need, to, you need to be aware of the routing number that's used that's associated with these prepaid cards. And again, it should send fraud signals through the roof. This guy says the exact same thing. Require funding into a named bank account via ACH. While many banks have substantial issues with KYC and stolen accounts, it's very important to have funds electronically deposited into a named account. Deposits onto prepaid cards should be strictly prohibited because this eliminates a critical factor or layer of fraud prevention. So ACH has to be named into an account that's got a name to it, not just a number, okay? Require business bank accounts. For programs or applications that require a registered business entity, require business bank accounts for all deposits. This should be independently verified with the RDFI. Where possible, ACH descriptors and routing numbers should be clearly separated and identifiable to aid RDFIs in their own fraud checks. If you're getting a business transfer, you need to be having it into a business account. Security pops up at that point. Again, all these all these little tags that I'm talking about, bullet points, these this is how you run fucking security. And this was not being done. This is why he's saying this is what everything needs to be done. All right. Apply strict rules after finding after a funding failure. Conduct manual reviews on all data and limit the number of retries or changes. Where possible under the rules of the program, add increasing delays for subsequent deposit attempts. First, try to add five days, 10 days, etc. 
This will add time for the RDFI to close accounts in case they detect fraud. And I've spoken about this before. Fraudsters look to get the money out as soon as possible. If you are delaying that, the longer you delay, it sends shockwaves through the entire criminal underground. They share and exchange that information. They know it's time to move on to a different victim, a different target, a different way to launder money. Require minimum bank activity. If possible, use Plaid, Yodley, etc. transaction data to verify bank activity existed at least 30 days ago. Remember what I said, you have to age those accounts out. Bank statements aren't useful for this purpose. They're too easy to fake. So you have to be able to verify that there's actual traffic on the account. I mentioned that. In order to have those government loans deposited, you need to make sure the account's got traffic on it, that it's got you know, some money in there because his next bullet point, require a minimum bank balance of over $20. $20 is often the minimum required to open an account. And in general, fraud rings are reluctant to deposit money that could be frozen. Yeah, we're not into giving money away. We're not into throwing money away. So we really don't, we're spendthrifts. We're stingy. We don't like to spend money where it's not going to, you know, result in profit. So they're absolutely right in that. Often it's not possible to collect this data due to institution or API failures. Restrict bank account usage. Limit the count, the count of deposits and count of tax IDs on applications associated with each bank account. Yeah. You want to make sure that a named bank account doesn't have 50 different names attached to it where you can accept 50 different government checks deposited to it. That would be a bad idea. Yet, again, that was what was happening during the pandemic with a lot of this stimulus fraud. Anonymous IDs and browser fingerprints. Jesus. So understand that a lot of fraudsters they were using privacy browsers. More specifically, they were, they were using the Tor browser to file all of these claims, and they were going through just fine. And this guy says, identify clusters of browser fingerprints and cookie-based anonymous IDs to find fraud. Fraud rings rarely change their ID or fingerprints across applications, so these links help to connect fraudulent apps together. He's right to a degree. I would say that unexperienced fraudsters or inexperienced fraudsters don't change their device, their finger, fingerprint, or their IP. The more skilled fraudsters, the way you actually do this kind of stuff is you come in like gangbusters. You, you're changing IPs, you're changing devices. Remember, Wally had 35 different phones, which means 35 different devices, 35 different browser, uh, browser fingerprints, 35 different IP addresses. That's the way it starts. You do everything properly out of the gate. Then once it succeeds, you become an expert in that. You see where you can start to cut corners. Can you use the Tor browser? Well, yes, you can. Can you use one device? Well, yes, you can. Can you use the same IP? Well, yes, you can. This individual is not understanding that when they're giving this, this specific bullet point. Device count limits. Applications that are associated with more than two devices are high risk, particularly if those devices are located more than 50 miles apart. This often indicates a vertically integrated fraud ring with specialist segmentation in each step. For example, KYC, documents, bank accounts, etc. It indicates that you've got a, a team of fraudsters that are working together. That Some of these fraudsters, like for unemployment, they were filing claims out of the Ukraine, out of Russia, yet they had money mules in the United States. Or they would have somebody making their bank statements, sending those over, things like that. So you would have different devices 
accessing the same application. He's saying, hey, you got to watch out for the bullshit. Absolutely. And you got to understand why that stuff is actually taking place too. Limit IP addresses distance from database address. So database checks of social security number will often return a recent address that is more than 250 miles from both the address shown on the ID and or the IP address location. This appears to be frequently associated with fraud. Yeah, no shit. You're selling, you're stealing someone's identity from Florida. Meanwhile, you're in Arkansas filing unemployment or food stamp claims. Yes, that's more than 250 miles away, that IP is. And yes, you should probably pay attention to that and think that it, something may be awry. Restrict tax IDs per bank login password. Where possible, if using Plaid or Yodley, restrict the number of tax IDs from an application that can use the same login password for a bank institution. Absolutely. Use loan amount to identify risk. With PPP Schedule C and F filters, 95% of confirmed fraudulent applications have been within $500 of the maximum allowable amount of $20,833. Did you get all that? That is an outstanding way to run security. If you're wondering what you need to do with your security team, use those bullet points as a Bible because by God, that's a good gospel right there. All right, so something else I wanted to talk about, and this is from uh, Sam Tossig over at Cabbage. They were, uh, they were worried to beat all hell about the news reports that were coming out. I mean, they were, they were contacted by all these different news agencies um, this guy is writing a story. I'm writing a story on alleged paycheck protection program loan fraud for the project on government oversight. Oh, shit. A number of the loans where we were examining were processed by Cabbage, and he asked a lot of questions. And uh, Sam's got a uh, his response sent out to a, a bunch of other people were uh, plus one. The canned responses will work for this. And we should... Uh, the canned responses will work for this, and we should get the customers' names referenced. The DOJ press rele releases do not mean KBJ or Cabbage pushed the money. DOJ has looked at attempts at other lenders to help build their case. Fair enough, all right? What he says is he says words matter, so points of clarification to be used however you like. So he's giving him the talking points. Anytime that you're asked a question, you need to refer as much as possible to these talking points. And the talking points that Cabbage was putting out was, bullet one, we filed a shitload of SARs. We could be a trigger for SEO investigations. SARs are confidential, so we're not supposed to comment on them with regards to numbers and certainly not in regards to specific cases. I cannot comment on any specific case. You know, we file a shitload of SARs, but I... You know, because of the investigation law enforcement, we can't comment on a specific case. The same goes for AML, money laundering procedures. We follow the BSA. They are bank grade, and we would never comment on any specific PNP or algorithm that could give criminal enterprises an edge. We don't, we're not going to tell the criminals what we're doing. So I can't answer that question. And understand, here's another bullet point. The subpoenas that you're referencing are witness subpoenas, not investigative against Cabbage. Furthermore, they are attached to a grand jury proceeding, and we 
are strictly prohibited by DOJ from discussing them or even confirming their existence. This could, bear in mind, this could compromise the attorney USA's proceedings. And then the last bullet point, you know, at the end of the day, it's the SBA's shitty rules that created fraud, not cabbage. So those were the bullet points being put out and advised to anyone who was unfortunate enough to have to sit down and answer questions from any of the numerous news agencies that were reaching out. As a matter of fact, they lament some of these news reports that were out there. Like there was a, I think it was a business insider one where they're like, man, I hope that motherfucker dies and doesn't ever get released. So they were, they were lamenting a lot of the different news stories and how it was bad press and how they hoped some of it didn't come out and how they were weathering some of them and stuff like that. Now from the, uh, what's interesting is some of the fraud team, in their Slack channels, they were talking about some of the stuff that was going on. And uh, I'm, I've cut the names out, but some of the conversation, I'll go through some of that so you get an idea that the fraud team actually knew and could identify the fraud that was coming through. However, they were not acting. And it looks like, for the way I'm reading this, it looks like that management just simply wasn't giving them the ability to act on anything. Now, why was that? Well, because, you know, these companies were profiting one to two billion dollars a year processing these loans. Profit matters. You want to know what a motivation is? Cyber criminals motivation, status, cash, ideology. Corporate's motivation, cash. They were profiting buku's amounts of money. So some of the conversation, here's one. An example of us asking the customer who helped who they help who, who helped them on their application and them lying and saying no we can see the customer logging in from the same device as a bunch of other applications so we know that someone's helping them on their application how should we treat these another one i think my issue is there's so many situations like this and they are providing all the docs necessary and they are passing inscribe so by the rules I should clear them. Response, sure, only asking, and because if we are going to clear them regardless of them lying to us, then what is the point of us even asking? Why the hell are we asking if someone has assisted them on the application? We know they're lying, but we're going to clear them anyway. Why even ask the question to begin with? Another response, I think if we have proof that someone else filed on their behalf, and we are lying that we should deny. So they're saying, hey, we should be denying this. Another response, what would the proof be? Response to that, I am fine with declining this based on the fact that we have a device match with many other accounts, and yet they claim no one has helped them fill out the application. The proof is in the device match. So they're telling them, what do you mean what the fucking proof is? The proof is right there. We know somebody else is on the account. We know someone's on the application. Response. Could we have a number of matches that warrants this decision? Response. Or does the amount not matter? Response. Everything else does match up for this account, though, which is interesting. 
provided all the docs, no fraud signals in Inscribe, even for the Schedule H, which we know is rare. But understand, the Schedule H, there was a link on those on those applications where you would fill out the Schedule H right then. You didn't have to have it filed. Only thing you needed to do was fake one, and they gave you the document right in there, right in front of you to fake it. Refer to those Telegram tutorials, which would tell you exactly what you needed to fill in on that fake Schedule H. So yeah, even the Schedule H was passing just fine. Logically, makes sense as well. Income was $70,000 in 2018 and then claiming $128,000 in 2019. The matching accounts also don't all have the same numbers on the Schedule H. Different numbers on the one matching account on the one matching account I looked at. So while I don't know if this is a common scenario where all of these things match up and all docs were provided and okayed, I do think we should decline this specific case because of their answer to the assistance question. Response, I don't think number of matching accounts matters. Even if it's one account, with a different customer name. It warrants the question, who is helping them, if I understand that question correctly. Response, look, this is an extremely common scenario for me personally, at least. I'm feeling really uncomfortable with the review procedure we now have because I'm not comfortable passing almost all the people I have to pass. Let me repeat that. I'm not comfortable passing almost all of the people I have to pass, but they have all the docs needed and answer the questions. So what am I supposed to do? And it's a waste of time for me and CS to push back and forth asking for docs over and over. Response. And here is here it is in a nutshell. Response. I feel like the level of fraud we're reviewing is wildly underestimated. And it continues to go on from there. Okay. Pages and pages of this conversation. And I I don't think I really need to keep reading them. It, it boils down to that last response. There, It's wildly underestimated the amount of fraud that we are reviewing. You heard the the one the one respondent said almost all could be like this, okay, to the tune of profiting these companies billions of dollars a year, billions. Now the SBA has banned Wampley and Bluevine, but there are other companies out there as well. There's uh, Blue Acorn. There's Cabbage. There's uh, all these other things. As a matter of fact, one of the companies lose the ability that lose their banking partner, Wells Fargo, tells them, hey, no, fuck no, fuck you. What the hell are you guys doing over there? And they have to get another banking partner. All these documents go through this and discuss this. That's you know, the, the name of this episode is When the Good Guys Suck. Okay. We expect we expect criminals to break the law. There is, I respect that. I not only expect it, I respect it. Hey, you, you, you're in your lane, you know? You're doing the stuff that you said you were going to do. You know what your career is. You know what your job is. You're following that. The thing is, is that when you're a good guy, when you're law enforcement, 
when your bank, when your fraud, fraud, you know, adding fraud or counter fraud, when you're doing all this stuff, you've signed on to a career of doing the right damn thing. When you're Joe Sullivan, you've, you've committed yourself to protection, to helping make things better. And now you're being a hypocrite. These fraud analysts, you can see it in this conversation that they are, they're saying, hey, there's fraud here. What are we supposed to do? And the buck is being passed. Management's not acting on it because they're profiting. But also SBA has shitty security. They're approving stuff coming over. And I actually talked to a couple of bankers at different banks, and they both said the same thing. Hey, yeah, we can see the fraud. We absolutely see the fraud. You speak to management, management tells us, hey, it's not our fucking money. That's true. But not only that, but they're profiting for every single loan that they're approving to the tune of billions of dollars of profit for that financial organization. When the good guys suck is, is the name of this episode. And we're, we're now closing it out. Uh, I guess it's going to run two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes, but I think it's been worth it to talk about this. I've talked so long that my light in the background behind my dunny with the ax, my Punisher dunny, as the battery has ran out. Now, I guess that's time for me to shut my damn mouth. But I want to say something. I want to say that uh, how do you expect, how do you expect to ever beat the bad guys when you yourself, you are one? Now, I grant you the fraud members out there, the fraud team, you guys, it looks like you guys were absolutely trying. And that typically is the way it is. You guys are absolutely trying. And you've got your hands tied behind your back. As management doesn't do anything because they're out there buying Porsche take hands, new homes, all this shit happens. You're out there doing all that. So uh, my hat's off to you for that. I understand. I do. I understand the stress and the anxiety, and I feel for you for that. But I've also got to get on your all's asses for a minute because all these news stories came out and every fraud analyst on the planet, not everyone, there were a couple that spoke out, but most of you guys kept your damn mouths shut. you got to be willing to speak up or speak out. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And the failure to speak out against the stuff that's being done by these companies, the illegal activities that's being done by these companies, the the furtherance of victimization against people. It's wrong. It's wrong. You gotta be, you gotta, you gotta speak, stand up, speak out, speak up. Same thing with this chargebacks 9-11. Same thing with Joe Sullivan. It's it's they are not on your team. And goddamn, I hope you're not on their team. I, I'm I'm really imploring you guys. Okay. Until you get to the point where you're able to say what needs to be said, you are never going to win this battle. All right? As long as you've got companies out there that help facilitate fraud, governments that don't give a damn about the money that's being stolen, people who won't speak out, the bad guys are always going to win. Does crime pay? Yes, crime pays. Do you want to know why crime pays? Look at today's show. That's just one reason. And there are many, many more besides that. My name is Brett Johnson, and I think more than important than anything today is how we close the show. How do we close it? We close it by saying, stay safe, 
stay secure, stay vigilant. More important than anything, we close this show with the final words of just do the right damn thing. I'm Brett Johnson. Thank you for listening. Until next time.